The following is a presentation of A's Cast, your free 24-7 nonstop destination for A's baseball. Go to athletics.com slash A's Cast to download the app. Restrictions apply. This is A's Cast Live, your comprehensive look at the Oakland Athletics. Twenty-nine other MLB clubs. Two-two pitch on Trout, and he blasts one. Way back, gone for Yelich. Cody Bellinger hits one out. He does. So he's your home run derby champion. Join us as we take you inside the baseball universe, from spin rate to juiced balls to game-changing moments. We have you covered. Spend your afternoon with us next from the town, only on A's Cast Live. A's Cast Live. Here's Chris Townsend. It is so great to be back. I cannot tell you. It's going to be a lot of fun talking baseball today. I've missed it. I've missed you, the fans, as we've all been hunkered down. And we're going to be hunkered down for a while. But this is what baseball does for people, and it's done it forever. It gives you a relief from what is going on in your day-to-day life. And we're going to be back Monday, Wednesday, and Friday from 1 to 3 every single day. Or I should say every single week. And we have a lot to get into today as the commander and I have just been researching and doing deep dives on different subjects just to keep our, 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 our heads on us. And one of the things we're going to get into today is the shift. So a lot of baseball researchers with a lot of time on their hands have been putting out some interesting articles this offseason and some lately about does the shift really work as, as much as we think it does? Because the shift is being employed more than ever before. 2019 was really the first time we started seeing right-handed batters get the shift. Edwin uh, Edwin Encarnacion was the first right-hander to have the shift employed on him. And then now we're seeing it on a daily basis in the game to where 40% of the balls put in play are against the shift. Is it really working that much? Or are they overthinking it? Now, we can look in like the Bill James... What is the official title of his book? The Bill James, what is it, handbook? What is it? As you always do to me, I brought my copy. I have it in my hands. Yes, it's the handbook. The Bill James Handbook 2020 with Christian Yelich on the cover and Matt Chapman on the back. So there's a, a whole part of shifting in the handbook, but it just tells you the information of what happens when a guy hits into the shift. And so the numbers there look great for people who like the shift. But when you do a deeper dive than that, there are ramifications of the shift that it's coming into question. Does it all does the does does the does the bad outweigh the good? We have some inf- we have some information on that. Like I said, we've all had a lot of time. I can only watch Frozen 2 I can only play Monopoly so many times before I want to scream. So we've been doing a lot of research on some things. But the number one thing is we are back. And we are here for you. 
And we're going to have a, a lot of different things coming up here on, on A's Cast. Just not here on A's Cast Live, but A's Cast. As we had the president of the organization on last week. Dave Feldman's going to join us on Friday, our A's historian. And we're going to do another green and gold A's, seg- A's history segment. And so we're going to constantly be updating A's cast. So you got something to listen to and you're going to have a lot of fun with. So the first article that I saw was, you know, I get I'm still the dinosaur that gets all the baseball magazines. So I got I got Athlon Sports baseball preview. I got Lindy's and what's the other one I got Streets and Smith. So I got all this information. And so I was in my backyard hanging with the dog, and I started reading this article in Athlon Sports MLB 2020 preview that I immediately had to start texting Cody because I went, wow, this is really, really good information. Uh, One of the funny parts, well, it's not that funny, but, you know, one of the segments is all the new managers that we have. And who's the first one they bring up? Uh, Carlos Beltran. See, when these things get printed – Certain things have happened in the game since these magazines were printed. But there's a ton. I mean, there's a ton of great info. But the the article that I read, it's called The Shift, Defense in the Modern Age. The majors saw a steep increase in the frequency in which teams deploy defensive shifts in 2019. In fact, a league that previously, previously shifted 14.4% of plate appearances from 2016 to 2018 suddenly went up to 25.6%. And you see certain players that have struggled with it. And one of the players they bring up is Bryce Harper because Bryce Harper likes to pull the ball. So he's going to see a tremendous amount of shifts. So I'm reading through this article, and I'm like, going, okay, I know all this, I know all this. And then all of a sudden it gets to the point where it says, is it really helping? Well, we know for a fact that it helps certain, and they do a great job breaking down the Dodgers. As the Dodgers' left side of the infield, Corey Seager at short, Justin Turner at third base, Turner now 34, these guys don't have a lot of range anymore. So the shift can really help teams like this because now you have three defenders on the left side, which is causing Justin Turner and Corey Seager to cover less ground, making them better defenders. It all makes sense. We see it all the time where your best defender, you got Matt Chapman who plays basically shortstop, and he's so athletic he can cover so much ground. That's why the shift works for the A's. You take your – you get to say, arguably, your second-best defender, even though Matt Olson is one of the best. I'm going to talk about Marcus Simeon. And we see Marcus Simeon basically play short right field. He's like Rover. But why do we see that it may not be working as much as you think? And the article goes on to say, So, baseball prospectus, Russell Carlton, who now works for the Mets. He's one of these guys, smart guys, knows analytics. But he put out a piece, and he researched 
and says, on average, pitchers throw fewer strikes when the fielders behind them are aligned in a non-traditional way. Because not every shift's the same. People employ it different ways. But pitchers throw fewer strikes. And in some cases, he found that the net effect of the shift was zeroed out. That every hit that the shift took away was canceled out by walks issued. Because his research showed us that pitchers walk more batters when the shift is on behind them. I had never heard that. I had never heard that. You think, oh, you know, we got a bunch of MIT and Harvard and Stanford and all these really smart guys that know how to crunch numbers and data and get that data to managers and managers take that with their coaches and they give it to the players. And you just think, well, it's got to be right. These guys are smart. These guys are researching it. These guys are crunching numbers. But it took Russell Carlton, who joined the Mets as, uh, let's see, he joined the Mets as an analyst in 2019. It took him to bring this out. That really has changed my mind on shifting. You know, for the most part, I'm a guy that's all about winning. That's what I care about. I, I care about winning, getting to the playoffs, having a chance to win it all. That's what I care about. And if shifting helps that, then I'm all in. I'm all in on winning because there's only two things you do in this business. You win or you lose. And that's how you're judged. Coming up next, I think I've changed, and I wonder if I can change you. Welcome back, A's fans. Welcome back, baseball fans. You're listening to A's Cast Live. Streaming from the town. A's Cast Live continues with Chris Townsend. Welcome back, everybody, to A's Cast Live, Warm Stove Edition. We appreciate you listening. We are thrilled to be back. I, 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 I'm even excited to even see Cody, and that's saying a lot. I will say I'm a little disappointed you shaved the beard off. Everyone on Twitter wanted you to grow the beard. Uh, it was awful. What? No, no one can see you besides me. It was me. awful. It was. It was. I, I. I feel less of a man when I try and grow facial hair. Yeah, but again, no one can see you besides me and your your loving family. So I mean, I guess. If yeah, but wife... I have to look at myself in the mirror, and the fact that it's so patchy and so awful looking that I I I I I, I don't feel like a, a, a man. A real man. During this time of uh, not seeing anyone besides you and, and Dina, my fiance, and your family, I decided to let the uh, the neck beard grow in as well. Oh, God. I'm, oh. Going, I'm going full Andrew Luck here. Well, I'll tell you this. The longer this lockdown goes, we're now going to see what women's uh, real hair color is as salons are not essential businesses and people who color their hair you're gonna start seeing who, uh, what the, what these ladies. Oh, you're blonde. Well, there's now some gray in there, huh? Yeah, I can't wait to. I won't get to see it unless I get a picture. But I can't wait to see what my dad's hair looks like. 59 years old, he still dyes it. Can't wait to see how gray it gets in this uh, this time. Paul Himbakidis from ESPN. God, he just they just did a really big article on him. The big lead, 
and uh, he's a top researcher and producer for ESPN on the show Get Up, and you can hear him on Buster Olney's podcast. Well, he now joins us every single week. It's really, really cool. He'll be here at one thirty. So at the end of this article that I'm talking about, it has this one line that really swayed me. The style of play by various factors shaping the modern game can be ugly and stagnant. I read that. I I got the highlighter out. I highlighted it. Ugly and stagnant. I am all about new stuff. I'm not afraid of an electric strike zone. I'm not afraid of the three batter men. I'm not afraid of change. Change is good. I might be with the commissioner now on banning the shift. Because what the shift has created is the three true outcomes. Home run, strikeout, and walk. And watching all of these old-time games, which has just been awesome, whether you're watching the Bucky Dent game, uh, what else was I watching? I watched a Royals-Yankees game. My guy George Brett hammering the Yankees. Mariners-Yankees game five. Tar, the Pintar game. Uh, game five from 95. What's on today? I haven't looked. I haven't looked at the, what they're showing oh, on the network. Watching old, so watching the Bucky Dent game. You've got Hall of Famers in this game, okay? You've got stars. You've got Yaz. You've got Reggie Jackson. you got Jim Rice. I mean, you got Hall of Famers in this game. It's a famous game, obviously. Bucky Dent, who only had four home runs on the year, hits the big home run. Ron Guidry, you forget how nasty that guy was. He got the win in the Bucky Dent game. That was number 25 on the year. Louisiana Lightning, or better known as Gator. If you watch that game, what did you see? You see the ball put in play. I mean, more than half the guys are choking up. They're making contact. Ball's flying all around the ballpark. Yaz hit a home run. Bucky Dent hit the home run. What people don't realize... And I forgot that actually the game-winning run was actually hit by Reggie Jackson. Because Reggie Jackson made it, got, got them to the five runs, and they ended up winning 5-4. But shifting has really turned this game into strikeout or pop-ups. And there's not a whole lot of balls being actually hit on the ground as much as it used to be. So there's not much there's not as much action. Now, I know Cody, you like shifts. But for me for the for what's better for the game, well first of all this article kind of proves that it kind of all washes out like you steal some hits, but then pitchers don't like pitching behind it because everybody's on one side of the field essentially. And when you walk people, when you throw less strikes and you walk people, walks lead to runs. That's that's happened throughout time. So it also kind of depends. See, that's one thing about, like, what the shifting information doesn't give you. They give you all the positive signs of shifting. They don't give you the negatives. And if you're walking more people, that's bad news. So you may take that hit away, but you may be giving it right back by – the pitcher going out and walking people. And I'm, I'm, I'm certain 
you know, some pitchers, the numbers will be different for everybody. What, what do you got from Bill James? This, Bill James does a good job telling you why it works. He doesn't do a good job of telling you why it doesn't. So there were 46,758 shifts in 2019. In 2018, there was 34,699 shifts. That's a 35% increase from 2018 to 2019. There's no question they're overshifting. Now, in 2019, 622 runs were saved per, uh, I believe it's per 100, per 100 shifts. So six runs every 100 shifts. I mean, it's not bad. That's like one per every 100, 1.33 or something like that. I am a fan of the shift, but there's a reason why, because I watch teams that championed it be good. The Brewers did it, the Rays, the Pirates. Those are three teams that used it. The, the Brewers won from being a laughingstock in 2010. Then Ron Renneke took over in, in 2011. They won 96 games and were the best team in the NL. But here's the problem. It makes the game boring. True. And but you got to learn how to beat the shift, too. Matt Olson does a great job beating the shift. He he laid down a couple bunts. I mean, it, it it's it, it's well. Last year he lost twenty seven hits to the defensive shift, but he also gained eleven. So the net is sixteen. So he essentially lost sixteen. See, that's hits. the thing. They say the net, but 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 think about this: how many times was Matt Olson walked when the shift was on, and then how many times did he score? That well, would he actually, that, that would change the net. He actually hit two sixty two with the shift on. I looked. He was like one oh six of like four sixteen or four oh nine or something like that. So it was like two two sixty two was his average with the shift applied. So. A point for somebody would be, for, first of all, I want more excitement in the game, right? I want, I want more balls put into play. I want less. I want less. Let's just all try and hit home runs, and that's all we do. And I think about defense, because I remember when I was texting with Cody after reading this article, he's like, oh, you're going to take the three-pointer away, or you're going to tell football teams they can't blitz. I don't think that's apples to apples. Because three-pointers are exciting. Blitzing and getting to the quarterback is exciting. Shifts is not making the game more exciting. Shifts is making the game more boring. And what I would equate, I think, is apples to apples would be basketball. Like, nothing is more boring than watching Jim Beheim and the Syracuse. I'm sorry, Professor Matt Pearl, but watching the, the Orangemen run the, the old the, the old uh, zone defense, it makes for boring basketball. Basketball used to, you weren't, allowed to, you weren't allowed to play zone defense in the NBA. Why? Because it made the game boring. The, uh, the Virginia Cavaliers are the, are the team now in basketball, college basketball, that slow the game down. They held their opponents like 45 points a game. I know exactly what you mean. I don't know. I just, I'm a fan of the, of, I just think the shift is something that has been around forever in baseball. It's been going on forever, but the last 10 year, 10 plus years, it's been overutilized. I think no, I am saying that 46,700, whatever the number was I gave out is a lot. That's a lot of shifting. I mean, you're shifting, you're just shifting to shift now. I mean, it would be one thing if you have a dead pole left-handed hitter, but now you're just shifting to shift. Like I looked, I went back and looked, we talked about this before. There was, the four-man outfield, where they have the four guys in the oh, outfield, yes. there was it was used 101 times last year in baseball. Most by the Tampa Bay Rays, I think they used it 38 times. I, I'm now in favor of saying you got to have two guys on the left, got to have two guys on the right. I mean, you can you can shade your shortstop up the middle, you can shade your second baseman up the middle, but then all of a sudden you'd be leaving, you know, the old Tony Gwynn 5.5 hole, you know, the the area between the third baseman and the shortstop would be greater. I mean, you can move your third baseman over, but now down the line, 
as everybody's just trying to pull the ball. Now you're down the line. You, so I think I would be up for that. And I think it would cause more guys to put the ball in play and you'd see more action in the game than everybody just trying to hit fly balls. But that's what you, – you, you want the ball in the air because of the shift. Now, that, I'm glad you brought that up because uh, our good friend Sarah Langs and I went back and looked this up on Baseball Savant. 31.2% of home runs in 2019 when a sh- shift was applied. That's how many times a home run was hit. 31.2% of tracked home runs in 2019 came in a plate appearance where the shift was on. Now, that's more than 2,000 home runs in 2019 where in plate appearance where a shift happened. That's 10,000 strikeouts, 4,000 walks. Jake Arrieta had the highest batting average allowed when the shift was applied at 411. You want to know what the, the A's leader was? Mike Fires and Chris Bassett each had 217 batting averages allowed with the shift on, so the shift actually helped Fires and Bassett. Yeah, I want to get rid of it. I want to get rid of it. For the sake of the game. Not, not, I'm not, I mean, you can debate. I'm sure everybody has different, I mean, I have this article that says it all comes out in the wash anyway. I'm sure certain teams would say that's, that's, that's not right. Our, our information says different. I'm just, I, I, I want to get more balls in play. I want less strikeouts, less fly balls. We need that. As you said, I mean, look how many strikeouts and walks, balls not being put in play. I mean, there are times where you go, how many minutes in a game and no ball is put in play? That's a good, it's a good amount of time. And I'm going to give you this. Do you know what team led, or led Major League Baseball, the least amount of shifts they used? Uh, I think that would, uh, the Chicago Cubs. That would be the Oakland Athletics. The we- A's in 2019 only applied 804 shifts. Uh, the next one closest was the Cubs at 834. Now, the Orioles uh, applied 2,515, 13 shifts. That's 13, thir- uh, 1,300 more than they did the year before, and they still lost how many games last year? Think Ooh. about think about this. In football, offensively, they tell you where you can line up and where you can't. You just can't line up in any formation. You got to have X amount of guys on the line, a scrimmage. Yeah, how many times do we see a legal formation? And it, it happens a quite, quite. A, it happens a lot anymore. Right, football tells you, okay, and then by your number, you know, you got guys that come in and offensive linemen. I've got a, you know, lineman. If they're they're you're gonna have an extra lineman, he's gonna come in. He has to report to the ref. There's just uh, looking looking at that leaderboard for AL and NL teams. It's crazy that the A's they won 97 games last year. They only they were last in baseball shifts, and then the Cubs, who won what eighty, well they won 80, 45 games last year. They didn't make the playoffs. They still won eighty plus games. Two teams that won over eighty games, you know, have a winning record. Don't use a shift. The team that led all of baseball, uh, the Orioles, they lost over hundred games last year. Hockey tells you, I mean, you got the blue line. I mean, there's certain all these sports have rules to them, right? That there's certain things you can't do. So that's why I I could see that rule, and I know Manfred's in favor of it. Banning the shift, going back to a traditional defense. Like I said, you want to play guys up the middle, you can do that. But you can only have two guys on one side, two guys on the other side. I I, I, I still cannot get over when Marcus Simeon fields a ball in short right field and throws to first base, we score at 6-3. He's not playing shortstop. The minute Marcus goes over to second base and goes into the outfield, he's playing right field. Right? Yeah. It's it should be would that be a nine? Nine three. Yeah. 
He's not playing shortstop anymore. I still love that because I, I remember when you first mentioned that. I, I, I mean, I've always noticed it from watching games and seeing it. But when you brought it up saying how it should be a 9-3 put out, I always laugh because I'm like, I always live for those moments where the right fielder throws out the guy at first base, which very, very, very rarely happens, but it, it's happened. I, I just love seeing it. It's like, oh, 9-3, you're telling me that uh, Stephen Piscotty threw out a guy at first base? No, 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 that was Marcus Simeon playing Marcus at right Simeon. field. How about how – about, how about, uh... What was the first time we saw it last year? Was it the Rangers when they put four guys in the outfield? Uh, either the Rangers or the Rays applied it with like Joey Gallo at the at bat for the Rangers. But no, I'm, I'm saying against the A's. Oh, yeah, yeah, it was definitely the Rangers then because Chris Woodward's a big fan of it. I, I can tell you the number of times they used it. And I remember watching it, and I remember going, where's, all the, where's, the, other, where's the other infielder? I think it was in Oakland, wasn't it? Or was it in Texas? I don't remember. But I just remember looking out and going, wait a minute, there's only three infielders. Uh, actually, the Rangers, it doesn't even have the Rangers listed on here, which is interesting. The The leaderboard in um, four-man outfields, the Rays use it 48 times, the Reds 35, uh, the A's zero, but they used it once in 2018. It doesn't have the Rangers listed in here, but I do remember seeing that happen. It doesn't so have all the teams, but it just says it just shows 101 right, Whoever it was, I mean, so you take an infielder and you put him out in left center and he catches a fly ball, you're going to score that, what, five? He caught a fly ball at third base, but no, he's in left center. Or whoever you put out there. Here's the hitters with the most times they've had the four-man outfield. Justin Smoke, lefty. Joey Gallo, lefty. Brandon Belt, lefty. Lucas Duda, lefty. Matt Olson, lefty. So always against lefties. It seems, and the same thing with the shift. The shift is always lefty. Is pretty much lefties. Like, well, now it's right. Now it's right handers. Well, yeah, That's the problem. Now there's like I looked it up on Baseball Savant. The highest batting average with the shift applied was Nolan Arenado at 420. Let me ask you a question before we get to Hembo. Do you want to pay the prices? See, we get to, we go to games for free. We get paid to go to the game. So our 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 opinions when it really comes to because fans don't like it, and the fans that's the customer. Cut, you know, being in the restaurant business, the customer's always right, let me tell you. The customer doesn't like it. They're the ones who, their opinion matters. Our opinion matters, but they're, pay, they're the ones paying the freight. Do I want to spend X amount of dollars? I want you to think about this. What it costs to park, what it costs for tickets, what it costs for food, what it costs for beverages, all that money that I spent because I want to go see a baseball game. I want to see the best players. Do I want to see Matt Olson and Matt Chapman bunting? Uh, no. I, I, Me, no. Okay, well. Fans, I don't know, if some fans might like watching the bunt. I want to see Matt Olson grip it and rip it. I want to see Matt Chapman. I want to see, I don't, to beat the shift on a consistent basis and, it, and, and and what you said, hey, beat it, you're going to have to bunt. You just lay down a couple bunts, but I'm not paying to watch Matt Olson bunt. I, 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 I want to watch Matt Chapman and Matt Olson do damage at the plate if I'm a paying customer. That's why I would get rid of the shift. Well, if people want to vote on this, I put the poll up on the Athletics Cast 24 Twitter account. Are you a fan of the shift? Very simple, yes or no. 
I didn't really put your side or my side on it. I just asked people saying that you wanted to know, are they fans of the shift? Yes or no? Because I need to go vote. Because there's a lot of people, like I think people that are diehard numbers nerds like me will be like, yeah, I love the shift because it helps your team win. And there's going to be casual fans that don't really, you know, they're just like, no, I want to see home runs. I want to see runs. I want to see the ball put in play like we did in the early 90s and the, the early the early aughts when the ball was actually put in play, where now it's just more three true outcomes, home run, strike out, or walk. A very good article in the USA Today. The, R, the, the, the title is, Less Lively Ball Will Hurt These Hitters Most. Some anecdotal evidence from spring training that the ball feels like it did before the 2019 Powerball. Dave Adler from BaseballHQ.com wrote this article. So obviously there's no evidence to this, anecdotal. It's just players know. This ball is their livelihood. The game doesn't start until the ball is thrown and there's a hitter. They know. Everybody will tell you, last year's baseball was like a cue ball. And it was a and it and it just it felt different to pitchers, hitters, their reaction. And then there is the conspiracy theory that they went to a less lively ball. In the playoffs. So, if we're going back to a less lively ball, we take a look at the players that could be affected the most. And it starts with two Houston Astros. Alex Bregman, 41 home runs. Is he going to do that again if this is a less lively ball? Yuli Gurriel, who was never a big-time home run hitter in Cuba when he came over, had a big home run year last year. They think these two guys go down. From the Yankees, Brett Gardner's been playing a long time. 28 home runs in 2019. He going to do that again? How about Glaber Day? Is he going to hit 38? Now, obviously, this article was written when we thought we were going to have a full season. So, obviously, a lot of guys' numbers will be different. But still... You can look at the percentage of games and how many home runs hit either way. Max Kepler from the Minnesota Twins all of a sudden hit 36 home runs out of nowhere. Is he going to do that at the end? Cattell Marte, who we talked about on Monday when we previewed the Diamondbacks. His high was 14. Think about that. The most he'd ever hit in a season was 14. He hit 32 last year. More than double. That's a head-scratcher. How about Manny Machado? They say that Petco down in San Diego actually decreases right-handed power by 9%. Now you take a less juice ball. Manny has hit 30 home runs six straight years. Will he do that again? He's going to be trying harder this year, so maybe. Uh, Don't Ma- forget. Yeah, Manny Manny, Manny, in the first year of a 10-year deal admitted that he, uh, he kind of mailed it in down at spring training this year and said that I'm going to try harder this year. Can you imagine you're A.J. Preller, you sign this guy to a record franchise deal, and he admits in the first year he didn't give it 100%. You got nine years left of that. I mean, in his defense, I will say one thing. He did hit 30 home runs for not trying, although we we know about the baseball and all that. But 30 home runs is nothing to scoff at for if you're not giving 100%. Say he's giving 70%. That's still pretty good. <laughs> but still, to come out and say, I wasn't trying. It's a bad look. Yeah. 
It's a real bad look. And they also think Fernando Tatis Jr., who got hurt, but he was on pace for a 40-homer season. They don't see that happening. How about Jock Peterson? We don't even know where he's going to play. Is he going to stay with the Dodgers? How about this crazy number on Jock Peterson from Palo Alto and Palo Alto High School? Jock Peterson hit 36 home runs last year. Out of those 36 home runs, how many do you think came off left-handed pitching? 36 home runs. How many did he hit off lefties? Three. Zero. Wow. So every home run was off a righty. Zero. That's uh, that's not good. That's called platoon player. Yes, that's. Uh, but that's... you're going to face more righties than lefties. But uh, those splits are those splits are like eye popping. Where are you? Where are you? Who are you taking out of the lineup for him though? If you're thinking about the, having play against righties. Oh, uh, I, I don't think he's he's he's, he's going to get traded. Oh, I know, but if this thing this hypothetically he's with the Dodgers. Who are you taking out? Well, you're not taking out bats. No, nope. uh, Bellinger ain't coming out. Oh yeah, I'm taking Bellinger out. Yeah, it's, that's smart. <laughs> uh, you're not taking Muncie out of at, at first base. So I mean AJ Pollock maybe, but you're paying Pollock a lot of money. So you want they're, they're keep... gonna they're gonna have you, you, you know you know where, you know where he would look good. He'd look good in the green and gold. Well, local kid comes home. I mean, we we got Canna right? and Simeon, right? Uh, where do you on Piscotti's local kid too? Where do you have him play though? I'm just saying that's that's we're gonna have bigger rosters. Uh, that's a that's a fair point. That when you mentioned the the um, extended rosters, if he's through thirty guys, that helps guys like Jorge Mateo and Franklin Barreto if they don't make the roster. That helps them if they if the roster expands. No doubt. I could I wouldn't mind Jock playing in Oakland. Playing playing against righties, he can play all three outfield positions and first base and first but base. Matt Olson played 162 games two years ago, so I don't think he's going to need a lot of days off. No. So you look in the outfield and. You got Canna, Piscotti, and hey, Moriano. You're, you're, you're adding a, thir- a thirty. I mean, he has legit. He's not. He's not Cole Calhoun. Yeah, Jock is not. J- Jock swings out of his, you know what, and he's got power. I mean, I, I could see him with the A's, and you know the way that they love versatility. You know, Piscotti hasn't been able to stay fully healthy for his career. Ramon Laureano last year broke down. I mean, you'd have that'd be a power bat to go in there with like Mark Canna. Just think of that outfield. That's four guys, and then Chris Davis DHing. It's a pretty powerful uh, outfield. That's a if you put those four guys together. That's what a hundred and what forty, hundred and sixty home runs. A lot they, of home runs. If they all say they all hit forty. Which by the way, and that's you just made a really good point. You know, because got you, you got guys that are out of options, and you don't want to lose Mateo or Barreto. If they extend rosters to I don't know thirty guys, that is that that, that could be really good for the A's. Eugenio Suarez. I really like him a lot. I think he's a great player for the uh, the Reds. But you're going to go over the numbers, and I'll and we'll talk about why we think it's uh, not good. What he uh, why we don't think he, his numbers were that impressive. Most of his damage came in the second half. He had 32 of his 49 home runs, and he's killing it in the Great American Bandbox in Cincinnati. 49 home runs. How many RBIs did he have? Not know? a lot. 103. That's, uh, that's a lot of solo shots. Yeah, that's, that's, we were talking about with um, uh, Cole Calhoun the other day. It's a lot of sol- solo home runs, and he hit 49, playing at the Great American Bandbox. And, I mean, 49 is great, and he's a good player, but he's coming out, he had shoulder surgery this offseason, too, during I think right before spring training. I mean, that's going to affect him, maybe. But 
I don't think he's going to hit 49 again. And the last guy that they think is the numbers, the power numbers going down without the juice baseball, Trevor Story of the Colorado Rockies. He's hit 72 home runs the past two years. The Coors effect, which enhances home runs by right-handed batters by 19%. Story hit only 22 home runs out of those 72 away from Coors Field. So as Petco takes away from your power by 9%, Coors Field enhances your power by 19%. You know, something that we need to get into is that this could be a year. And Aaron Boone recently said it on the radio. What station was he on? But Aaron Boone talked about, hey, if if you want to experiment, this is the year to experiment. Let's see, Aaron Boone, so he he told MLB Network Radio on Sirius XM. He said, if this is the year you guys want to try something, where they've talked about expanding the playoffs to where you'd have seven teams from each league. By the way, Tony Wynn Jr. at 2.30. So Feldman at 1.30, Louis Tion at 2 o'clock, Tony Wynn Jr. at 2.30. But if there was ever a year that you wanted to expand some stuff and try some stuff, this would be it. Now, the good news is, first of all, Commander Cody, how are you? I miss you. I miss you, too. This is the first day we're doing the show from different broadcast locations, which is uh, 2020 now for everyone. It's real, it's a realistic goal. Um, I have a studio audience in my apartment. Um, it's great. Keep but, that uh, dog quiet. Yeah, she was – Leia was a little loud and rambunctious while we were uh, talking earlier, but she'll be under control now. But um, it, I'm doing great, and this is, you know, kind of the times we're facing where we're going to be working at different locations, but – we're able to make it work, which is the best part. And uh, good news yesterday, I didn't get to tell you this, I found toilet paper, so I will not run out of toilet paper in the near future. Okay, well, yeah, because you used all mine. Yeah, Well, that's true. I had to borrow some. Um, yeah, w- w- we need to. We weren't doing this, and shame on me. I should have made the call earlier, but we weren't doing – um, our, our social distancing and finally made the decision that, you know, people are going to be listening to us and we're in the same studio and in a crammed area like we are. I mean, my studio can fit about three people if we cleaned it out. Um, but, uh, yeah, so we're, so we are not in the same room, but we're doing what everybody should be doing. And I think what, what's happening in New York, you know, it was, it, it's happening in New York and it's spreading so fast. And, you know, having just been to New York in February and when you ride subways and you see all the cabs and you see everybody on top of each other, you can see how this thing can get out of hand. And it's one of the good things that our governor, Gavin Newsom, did what on March 15th when he pretty much put us all on lockdown. And, you know, that was a very, very good idea because they were not doing that in New York. And unfortunately, uh, the virus has spread very, very fast and it's going to continue to spread. But. I think what we're seeing in baseball is they're starting to get prepared to be able to play. We still have, you know, March, today's March 27th. You know, I can't tell you how many times in my career I watched the basketball national championship game on a Monday night at the Coliseum. You know, the tournament, you'd have the final, you know, final four. They play on Saturday, two winners go on, games on Monday night, 
that's when we used to open up. And it was even later than that years ago. So now we have the players union agreeing to things that are going to help get the season when they think they can go, whether there's going to be fans or not. They've got parameters that now the owners are going to have to sign off on, which I believe they will. But basically, Manfred, the commissioner, and the players' union have come to uh, a working agreement on what could happen this year in a shortened season. The players have agreed to a prorated salary in 2020 as the season as the season is shortened, and they're going to get up front. There's going to be 170 million dollars lump sum in advance that they will spread out for the players, depending on what your contracts are. And then we'll go from there. And really what the the major thing that happened is that the players, because you don't get paid, like they were supposed to start, this would be the first time they start getting paid, is when you play a game, which is yesterday. That's when you start getting paid, is when the season starts. And actually, the commissioner has a clause. It's called the uh, commissioner has the right to withhold salary in a national emergency. I mean, there was a way that they would just say, hey, we don't play, you don't get paid. And baseball didn't want to do that. And in these negotiations, somebody's both sides got to give for what's best for the game. And. Essentially, what players viewed as their most important thing is service time. That was the one thing they wanted. The fact that if we play very little games, whether we play, let's say we play 162, or we play 142, or we play 82, whatever it is, they're still going to get their service time. So you're one year closer to free agency, or if you're a guy like Mookie Betts, no matter what happens, let's say they even cancel the season, Mookie Betts will still be a free agent after this year. And for arbitration, this was a big thing for the players. They were willing to sacrifice full salaries in 2020 to be able to look forward to getting them one year closer to free agency and arbitration to get paid. Now, a lot of the guys who already have contracts, you know, you name some, Mike Trout, Giancarlo Stanton. I mean, the guys have been getting paid big money. These guys, they're, they're fine. The service time is for guys that are trying to get to that big money. And so I'll read a little bit from The Athletic as Ken Rosenthal and Evan Drellich, both friends of the program, have been all over this for the athletic. And I think this right here is really what you need to know because we know the athletic can be a little wordy. And I don't know if you want to. We now have time to read every word (laughs) that we didn't before, but now we have, we've got all day to read these things. So I'm going to read you two paragraphs. The turning point for the players was when the league agreed to grant service time in the event of a canceled season, allowing players to continue toward free agency and arbitration. The number of days a player received in 2019 would be the same number he would receive in 2020. The players will also earn a full year of service in a shortened 20 season, regardless of how many games 
the schedule includes. That was the big deal. Still, the players' gain in service time came at a price. They yielded on their full salaries for 2020, probably a wise decision, and I think this says it all. Probably a wise decision considering any of their financial demands would have come across as tone deaf with the economy in peril. There might all their case might also have been weak based upon language empowering the commissioner to withhold salary in a national emergency. Totally makes sense. Everybody got together. We're in this together. We're going to get through this together. I'm going to give a little. You're going to give a little. God, isn't it? It, 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 it just makes me think back to, to those times when I was a kid and then into the 90s where there wasn't give and take. And they, they, they didn't realize, I think, back then how precious this sport and really all the sports how, how how really precious they are. And it's not till they take it away that you realize, God, we were stupid. In these negotiations, everybody needs everybody need to have some wins. I mean, my God, we canceled a World Series in 1994. Looking back on that now, how stupid was that? And everybody looks back on that. They had so much labor strife in the 80s. They It was so easy. Oh, we're striking. Oh, we're locking you out. The two, the, the two were tone deaf. As of, I mean, last night, I've been, I've been getting ready for the show, so I haven't watched much news today. But, you know, almost 3.3 million people filed for unemployment. Think about that. 3.3 million people. And it's going to be more. If you're the players and you're talking about money and you have financial demands and people aren't working – and you already have, for the most part, a lot of money in the bank, tone deaf. It would have looked really, really bad. And I think what they're setting this thing up for, and because it gets into a whole nother level of, and this happens for every sport, is you have your national and your local TV contracts. And that's why I think you're you're hearing, you know, looks like going to be sometime in May, late May, going to get this thing going again. It doesn't, you know, whether there's fans or not, I don't know. There's certain baseball columnists are putting that out there. But the number one thing that they had to agree to was how is this going to look going forward? Because... If you didn't have this template in place and all of a sudden you go, okay, we're ready to play, there would have been too many, too many questions and that where there could have been infighting and now here come the agents. Now, the fact that they have this template and now the owners have to agree, the players have agreed, now the owners agree, now we just wait for when they're going to allow us to start playing baseball again. So this was big today. I know it's something that to most baseball fans you don't care about. I get it. But it's something that we need to talk about because this was big. And you know what? We really won't talk much more about this, but this had to get done. Because there's other stories in the game that I think are far better. 
business getting done, dot and I's crossing T's, that, you know, that's good. But then we move on as fans. And I absolutely love, you know, in times of need, we have seen this through a lot of different conflicts, wars, tragedies, where other people step up and help out doing things that they don't do to help everybody else. And wanted to applaud this story about Fanatics. Fanatics is the company that makes Major League Baseball uniforms. They have suspended production on jerseys and instead polyester mesh fabric They're taking that now to make masks and gowns for hospital workers right now in Pennsylvania and nearby states. So they have a picture and it's these gowns that are basically Yankee, the white Yankee pinstripe and the white uniform. I do believe the Phillies have, don't they, don't they have a version that is a pinstripe too? It's a red pinstripe. I want to say, I believe you are correct in that. Yes. And they show two hospital workers wearing this. And I want to applaud anybody out there, any company that is out there is helping and helping to get us over this. And that's pretty cool by Fanatics. And I bet once they really start getting the production going, that they should be able to start making more than just for around Pennsylvania, around the Pennsylvania area. So... Fanatics developed a prototype that was approved by the state's emergency agency. And by Tuesday, the company halted productions on all jerseys when you're talking about making these masks and these gowns. So that is a definite positive right there. That is a story that's great to see. So when we talk about some changes that could happen, what they've been looking at is essentially having seven teams in the playoffs from the National League and seven teams from the American League. And I know whenever we start talking about expanding playoffs, people go, I don't like that idea. I get it. People don't like change. But as Aaron Boone said, if you're ever going to do something like that and you want to see if it works, why not in a year like this? Because this year is going to be strange. I mean, we literally have no, like, in Sports Weekly, they have a a really good article. It says, what will baseball season look like when it returns? How are they going to do the scheduling? Because if you just say, okay, we return, take a date, and all those games are now gone that were on the schedule, you're going to have, and, They use the example of the Yankees and the Rays. And the Yankees and the Rays should be the two teams battling out for the AL East. So if the Yankees season begins on June 1st, that wipes out two scheduled series at Tampa, seven games. And that leaves the Rays, that leaves them with three series in New York. So if you're talking about having an equal schedule, which it may not happen, I don't know what baseball is going to do. 
But if you're trying to make this as legitimate as you possibly can, how can the Yankees not have to go to Tampa as much and Tampa has to go to New York? Total disadvantage. Another one, if the season begins on June 15th, the New York Mets schedule has them playing nine more road games than home games, including three separate West Coast trips. You might just have to swallow it, or baseball's got time to get creative. They truly have time. And that's what this article talks about. But the whole playoff thing, you'd still have three division winners, and you'd add two more wild cards to the National League and the American League. So out of the seven teams, the team with the best record, they get a bye. So that means, I don't know, doesn't matter whether it's, let's let's just call it Dodgers in the National League. If I had to bet right now, I'd probably say they're going to have the most wins in the National League, in the American League. Now with the Yankees being able to get healthy, could be Yankees, could be the A's, could be the Twins, could be could be the Rays. So that would leave you a team with a bye in the first round, and that gives you six other teams in each league playing three different series, three series in the National League, three series in the American League, and it's a best of three. That'd be pretty exciting, and it's different. See, normally when we bring these things up, everybody flips out about change. I don't like change. Change is always met with opposition. But this might be a year where we don't have that, where we might understand we want to get as much baseball as we possibly can. We may get to a point that if we're playing in November, that they may go like Super Bowl style or college football, where it's a neutral site. Because I think of places you could play, I'm thinking L.A., Anaheim, San Diego, so Southern California, and Texas. Obviously, you have Arlington, and you have Houston. They both have roofs. You're not going to play in Tampa, and you're not going to play in Toronto. And I don't want to leave our good friends up in the Pacific Northwest out in Seattle, beautiful Safeway, uh, Safeco now T-Mobile Park, which is beautiful but they're one of the major hotspots with the coronavirus. So I doubt they would go play postseason in Seattle. So that I gave you five destinations right there. And so after these quick three-game sets, you would go to the NLDS, NLCS, and then you'd play the five-game series. And then the ALCS, NLCS, and then the World Series. Cody, what do you think about implementing that this year? Test it out. A lot of playoff games. We don't know where we are going to be from lockdown situations or stay at home, stay in place. But looking to, okay, this is going to be a weird season anyway. Let's see how it works. And and I bet there are going to be people. Hopefully people are going to games at that point. But I think in a season like this, if you said, hey, there's a playoff game in Anaheim and it's the Yankees up against the Twins, I bet more people, we're going to want entertainment 
And we're going to know the the government uh, is going to want us to try and get normalcy back in our lives. I can see people in this may not be the norm, but I could see trying something out this year. I'm with you. I think that having the opportunity to have more teams in the playoffs and the warmer city climates is great because who wants to see a playoff game potentially played in New York or Minnesota and it gets postponed because of snow? Uh, fans aren't tuning in for that. They're tuning in for the Yankees and Twins playing a series in Anaheim or San Diego or well, Do- we we probably figured the Dodgers are going to be in the playoffs. The so Dodgers Stadium might be off the table, but who knows? By the way, I just thought of another one. They got a roof. Arizona. That oh. gives us six legitimate options, and you could make essentially – I mean, Scott Boris talked about playing the World Series on Christmas Day. Um, you really would be guarded against bad weather with the three sites of Arlington, Houston, and Arizona if you're talking well into November. Could be even December. I mean, these games are getting in for sure. Yeah, another park, too. I think they have a – Milwaukee, right? I would say Milwaukee has a re- retractable roof. And, I, and so Seattle does, too, though. T-Mobile is a retractable roof. Yeah, also. But I think the way Seattle's been, Seattle, Washington's been hit really hard. That yeah, and plus, I, I, that's I, a, I see them probably staying away from there. And that's a logistical nightmare, probably in Seattle, if the Seahawks are playing a regular season game, also. But yeah, Milwaukee is great because a lot of people love Miller Park. It's a, it's a great looking ballpark, and they have a retractable roof. That'd be a great place to play, playoff games. I I like this whole idea of having you know the more teams out of the playoffs. So I was with that whenever they were talking about doing that before we had all this go on. I think it's good for the game, giving more teams a chance. Because if you're a team, you know, hovering around 500, but you know, you could be a playoff team at the end. I think it's good, and I I completely agree. Playing at warm climate places to get normalcy back in the country, I'm all for that. How about this? Now this will this this will this will freak baseball people out. How about this? How about get rid of the divisions, and you just have the NL, and you have the AL. And you stack the playoffs basically like the NBA. And you seed them one through seven. With with that top seed getting a bye. But everybody is seeded based, up, based off your record. And if you have ties, you have tiebreakers and everything. But for this one year, you're not going to be the American League West champ or, or the American League East champ. You're just going to – you're going to play. And how you win is how you're going to stack up. And the top seven teams – uh, and, and, and each league move on to the postseason. Uh, all for that as well. I think the taking eliminating the divisions is, you're right, a lot of people will not like that. I know the NBA is kind of, that's something that's been discussed in the NBA, getting rid of the conferences and just seeding one through 16 so you can have potentially the Lakers would play the, I don't know, the, the Orlando Magic in the first round as a 1-16 matchup. I think doing that in baseball is great too because we saw it a couple of years ago, and I, I'm not going to bring it up because I'm a fan of the team, but we saw the Cardinals win 100 games, the Pirates won 98, and the, and the Cubs play 97, and the Cubs and Pirates were in a wild card game after winning 98, 97 games. We saw it with the A's the last couple of years winning 97 games. I think that doing seeding them one through seven, I think it makes it much more – I think it makes it better for te- – it's not penalizing teams that are winning games playing behind teams that are better in the A's sense with Houston last year and in New York with Tampa Bay winning 96 games and they're playing behind the Yankees. I, I like the idea of one through seven because it makes it more even – for teams playing, and it gives them a chance to not have to play a one-game wild card. Dallas, how are we doing? How's the family? Uncle Tony, I am well. I hope you and the family are doing all right as well. Uh, we're just kind of hanging out, man. Um, 
and talking baseball, which is always a good thing. Yeah, this was, and and I applaud Dave Cavill, our president. He was like, you guys got to get back on the air. People are cooped up in their houses. They want something to feel good about. They want baseball. They want to hear baseball, and that's why the show, we're back on. We're going to be on every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday from 1 to 3 to give you a release. And then, of course, tomorrow, the replay. Have you ever gone back and watched this game before? No. No, uh, no, I've seen, I've seen at bats, right. And I've seen, I've seen highlights. I've kind of gone over highlights and stuff, but I have never, and I don't know that I could ever sit down and take in that game again. I, I don't know that I have the emotional capacity if I'm being totally honest. Uh, there, there's just, that's a, it's really great for me to be able to enjoy the game the way I do through the lens of the fans. Um, and, and that's what's really important to me is is being able to open up and, and take in so many different stories and perspectives of that game. And, and really, that game kind of transcends and becomes, for me, insight what sport can mean to a human being, to a family unit, to a friend circle, to, to just, in my opinion, the American spirit in general and county. You, you just nailed it when you talked about Dave Cavill having a feel and understanding that these kind of conversations, they, they just help. Whether you want to say they have to happen, they need to happen, they just help. And, and being able to share that moment with fans and really, you know, if I'm being honest, being a baby and not being able to watch it again, for me, that helps. Yeah, I remember doing the post-game show that day. It's Mother's Day, and I remember getting texts from my wife because so many people called in. So many people wanted to talk about it. I went on for like three hours, and I remember my wife going, we have to go to my mother's. For my-. And I'm like, I can't, I can't. <laughs> people are too excited. And uh, it, it, was, it was so emotional because you lost your mother. Your grandmother was there. It's Mother's Day. Can you take us back what it was like after the game for you and your family? Well, after the game was very, you know, um, it's kind of anticlimactic when you when when I say it when I when I speak about it because there there was no huge celebration. There was no, we we legitimately went home, ordered a pizza, and just kind of had some had some beers and really appreciated what had just happened because I, you know, for, for anybody who has lost somebody and you deal with their birthday, a anniversary, whatever memory that comes along on that physical calendar, it, it, it can just be a, uh, it can be a gut wrencher, you know, and, and for myself and for my grandmother and, and really it kind of trickled into our friends and family network because we were just, reclusive in that time frame and come mother's day during the year we were not people you wanted to be around because and and that and that's terrible to say but i mean it just was our reality mother's day was a day that we if we could have we would have ran from and it's almost like that was the only way we were going to be able to cope with the struggle and the loss that we were dealing with and it was kind of like our life had put on been put on pause up until that moment, up until that day. And it was like, it was just kind of like taking that, 
that bath and being cleansed of all of the, you know, I mean, if I'm being completely honest and candid, all of the depression and all of the, you know, anxious thoughts you have about why you're doing what you're doing. Is it ever going to be enough? Am I going to be able to take care of my grandmother? And, and then that day kind of, you know, put a period and, and was able to close the chapter of those thoughts. All right. So you go back home, you have pizza, you're drinking some beers. And the next thing you know, everybody wants to talk to you and your grandmother. Good morning, America. Every, like, like, what was it yeah. like when all of a sudden everybody wants to put you on these national TV shows? Well, it was, I mean, you know, I have, I've never really had an issue sitting down and, and talking to people. Uh, you know, you and I could probably sit and talk about paint drying for an hour and breeze <laughs> right through that, Tony. Um, but but it was it was just, for me, it was great because I felt like, you know, our, our team and our organization was going to get some shine, was going to get some love. Um, I was going to be able to talk about, you know, the, as I jokingly say, there were more there that day, I know, but, you know, the 1,500 fans who were all in attendance, who all drove in the same BART car to the game together, you know, uh, I, I was, I was going to be able to kind of put that on a national stage. And that was what was really cool. It's because I'm doing the interviews and I'm in my big league uniform, you know, and, I'm, and, and, and that's what's cool. I'm doing David Letterman. And one of the, I mean, the absolute coolest thing about sitting down and talking with David Letterman was sitting down in the ballpark in Arlington and having Michael Young, an opponent that I have the utmost respect for, walking by, you know, like took his hat off and shook my hand and gave me, and was like, hey, man, outstanding, like, congratulations. And I was just like, uh, uh, you know, like, like almost starstruck by my opponent, but just because of the amount of respect I had for him. And here he was acknowledging me. So it's incredible. It's an incredible ride to go on. And I mean, you know, I, I still, I think I still struggle to realize that my feet have not firmly hit the ground since that day. Well, and, and I think it, it is a day that really bonded you with this fan base and this fan base, you know, they voted for you to be top 100. They absolutely love you. There is a special relationship that you have with the Oakland A's fan base that's really, really special. Well, I, I appreciate, I think I appreciate and I understand the plight of the baseball fan, but in our neighborhoods and in our economies, what I know and what I've heard and what I kind of understand and I can speak candidly about is I have absolutely been where our fan base comes from. The struggles they've gone through, I've been there as well. I've gone through those struggles. I know exactly what the game of baseball in our neighborhoods can do for folks, and I understand the passion. Like they, These are people who, who grind and work their butts off, County, to be able to come to a place that the rest of the major leagues scoffs at, and it's a place they wrap their arms around, just like they do the entire organization. And to be able to connect with those people and to have those people allow you to perform in front of them, that's how I process it, because they can spend their hard-earned money on absolutely anything they want, and they're choosing to come to the ball game, which means somehow, some way, I get a paycheck, but they're really allowing me to play in front of them. And understanding that and appreciating that can go so far. And, and that's why I will always, always, always have the time for people who spend their hard-earned money in those neighborhoods under those circumstances and come out and support what we're doing. Watch one of us be able to live out a dream. And 
you know, for two, three, four hours a day, they're right there living it with us. You got to, you got to love that. I don't know how you don't. 109 pitches, 77 were strikes, and Tampa was a really good lineup. They had some really good players. Yeah, they were. They, they weren't. They weren't a bad club. I mean, I believe if I'm if I'm not mistaken, they won almost. I think they won almost 100 ball games that year. Um, I mean, like really from the top of the lineup all the way through, it was like, oh my god. I mean, we're talking. Bartlett, Jason Bartlett, Crawford, uh, Zobrist, I think, Longoria, Pena, Upton, um, uh, I want to say Eric Ibar or Navarro or the other way around, I think, and then I think it was Kapler at the bottom of the line. I mean, all the way through that lineup, you've got like pro hitters, pro approaches, and th- th- that's why that's why I chuckle when I when I just think about it because. Like me and my stuff against that kind of lineup at that time. Like you know, you're you're praying for the quality start. Can I get six? Let's keep them. Let's keep the crooked numbers, you know, to a minimum, and let's hope our boys got a chance to get to their big guy at the time, James Shields. So I mean, you know, doing your homework and preparing for what was coming, you knew what the task at hand was, or at least I knew what the task at hand was. And you know, when that team steps on the field, you better be bringing your lunch pail. And the guy who caught you, Landon Powell. What's what? What's he doing now, and how's he doing? Uh, he's just dominating over in uh, North Greenville uh, University, I believe. <clears throat> he's uh, he's put together a heck of a program out there, um, and I mean he's a head coach enjoying enjoying the uh, retired life. But if you're a ball player, if you're a lifer, you're never retired, right? You're just kind of changing uh, changing roles and changing unis throughout the year. So. That's what he's doing, and he's – hes uh, I mean, I couldn't be happier for him, man. He's right where he needs to be, on a ball field with his beautiful family around him. Scott Emerson told me one time about you when he had you in the minor leagues. He said Dallas was so accurate that at times he wanted you just to throw balls so you weren't always in the strike zone. I, I mean – Talk about your relationship with Emo. We know what a great pitching coach he is, but but your guys' relationship, you guys are still pretty tight. Yes, Emo Emo was an incredible mentor for me just because of the way he goes about his business in the film room, in the study hall, and you know, that's where that's how I was able to get to where I got. That's how I was able to, you know, stick around for a little bit was just because I was trying to figure out the ins and outs, the X's and the O's, and he really provided me a firsthand look at what that can do for you because I was the guy calling him in a ball, telling him, I want, you know, I want these scouting reports. He's getting video. He's having our clubhouse guy, other pitchers take video of hitters. We're getting scouting reports from our advanced guys on the road. He's color coordinating, you know, counts and sequences and, putting together their success rates because this is stuff that, that I wanted to look at. I wanted to know he had the information already. And and when you find somebody that you're able to sort of, you know, when you find that dance partner, you know, you, you just know. And I can't look at emo without knowing we are about to get real deep into a conversation about the art. And that's what excited me about showing up to the yard every day with him. But yeah, I mean, there were times, and, and and he's right, and this is not, you know, I'm not trying to brag at all, but there were points where he would say, all right, you can you can throw a strike at will. Now we're going to learn to command. The great Dick Callahan is with us. How are you, buddy? 
Oh, I'm just having a terrific time. I can't tell you how excited I am to be sitting here watching the paint dry in my condo. <laughs> it is what it is, right? It certainly is. It's it's an exciting time. It's uh, you know, you used to think, well, you get up and you get going and you do all these kind of things and you keep a busy day and you have you have a great family and you're happy to be involved in things with them and you do some business things occasionally. Now you sit here and you watch the reruns of Law and Order, and uh, uh, it's, it's just wonderful. It's uh, I've got everything done in my house. My condo in Rossmore is right now a perfect, perfect-looking condo. Everything is neat. Everything is clean. All the laundry that had to be done has been done. It's been great. But as you as you did in your nice introduction, I have I have moved to another level, Chris, and I'm not sure. That I that I might not be able to take this to even a greater level than that. How many people do you know do PA announcements at a Safeway? I've never I've I've uh, never heard of that. I think you may be the only one. Uh, it may be the honor, the first time in Major League Baseball history that the announcer for a team is now doing announcements at Safeway. Well, that's what I was thinking too, and I you know I don't have a, a great resource to try to verify that. But I have done two no-hitters. I have done a perfect game. I've done over 2,700 games in all different sports between the, the various uh, teams that I've, that I've represented over the years. But I'd never done a Safeway before. And it was, a, it was an absolute classic. I was looking for a certain type of milk that I drink that I wasn't able to get at the couple Safeways that are within five or six miles of where I live. So I went to the Safeway down in Alamo. And when I went in, this guy walks up to me and he said, excuse me, aren't you Mr. Callahan, the A's announcer? And I said, yes. And uh, he said, can I help you? And I said, yeah, I'm looking for a particular milk. So he went to look and they didn't have it. So he said, but I'll, what I'll do is I'll save, I'll get some, the next time it comes in, I'll set some aside for you and I'll call you. You can come down and pick it up. I thought, that's terrific. That's that's customer service at the highest level. So he uh, he called me the next day and he said, I've got I've got your milk. I said, great. So I come down and I meet him in the back and he happens to be the, he, he and his, his buddy happen to be the, the uh, uh, guys who, who handle the, the booze. Now, why I wasn't looking in the booze department, I have no idea, but I was, I was you know, celebrating the milk and not, not worrying about the booze level. But anyway, he went back and found it and he got it. And when he brought it out, he had a yellow pad with him. And he said, would you do me a favor? And I said, sure, what would you like me to do? He said, would you welcome our shoppers and tell them that we're having sales in the, in the alcohol department for both beer, wine, and, uh, and the other good stuff, and let's just come back and see either Mark or Chris. And I said, I'd be happy to do that. So one take, one take, got it done. And people came out, the manager came over, people were asking, is that, is that, is that who we think it is? We recognize his voice. So now I've, I've risen to another level, Chris, and I'm not sure – what I have, I probably have to find some way to to get adequate compensation for that type of effort. But you're you're the master of doing those things. Do you have a suggestion for me? I don't think they can afford you, and I think this, <laughs> I, I, I I think this might put you into Cooperstown. This might finally get you into the Baseball Hall of Fame. Well, I, you know, I tried earlier this month. I was the MC for Moraga Baseball when they had their opening opening day. And, and uh, I was over there for the morning and introduced the players and had some great fun with that. And I live in I live in Rossmore. I think I told you that, but I live in Rossmore. And over the last couple of months, once a month, I'm doing the introduction to the new people who are moving into Rossmore 
to the various services that are available here. So the horizons have been broadened beyond belief. And, uh, uh, you know, I think I'm going to have to sit down. I, I, I think I need a rest after all I'm thinking about that. That's, that's tiring. <laughs> you know, in your, li- in, your, in your lifetime, you've seen how sports heals, and especially the game yes. of baseball. Talk about what you've seen right. all these years, because every so often we have some horrific stuff happen, and it's really sports that help us get that relief fr- from the bad news. Well, it's, it's such a common denominator of people's abilities. Uh, you know, you've got people who cannot play various sports, but they can, they can umpire, or they cannot play and they can score, or they cannot play, but they can do these things, and, and they can coach, and they can be an assistant coach. And, you know, how many fathers have coached their kids through various levels? You know, holy smokes. These are, these are things available to me that never would have been available. Um, I mean, I had, when I played little, little league baseball, I had two speeds and one of them was stopped. I mean, I had no speed whatsoever, but I was able to play baseball, but I always knew I wanted to be part of sports and boy, it has been a magnificent thing for me. You know, at, at my age uh, to have all these years of games and be able to have done all these things, it's, it's so rewarding and, and so inspiring to myself. I mean, I, I inspire myself to, to continue to want to continue to do it. So it's, uh, but it's been it's been the outpouring of of events. Like I said, I think it's something like I think it's something like twenty seven or twenty eight hundred games over the years, and all different sports: football, baseball, basketball, soccer. You know, uh, and and now Safeway. <laughs> you know, I, I, I people really don't understand how tough your job is. I I had no idea until when you had problems with your throat that I had to fill in right. for you, and it really right. was like, oh my god! I you don't have time to go to the bathroom, you don't have time really for anything. You're always talking, right. and you don't really like people think baseball is slow. All you have to do is do PA for one game, and you realize there's always something going on, and you always have to talk about it. That's exactly right, and it, it's it's funny the the. You know, we've had some games that went over nine innings, and we had some games that went over 17 innings, and we had a 19-inning game. And the last 19-inning game that we had, in the 17th inning, I finally had to give in and go to the bathroom because I can't. It's too far. The bathroom is too far from the from that part of the press box that I work in. And so I went over. All I had a guy sit in, and all he said was, for the visiting team, now batting. And this is at uh, 2 o'clock in the morning. He, he said, uh, now batting. And, and – the batter went out and they did what they did. And I, the following weekend, I was out on the promenade, and a family came up to me and said, Mr. Callahan, would you take a picture with us? And I said, sure. And the guy said to me, he said, the other night in the 17th inning, did you go to the bathroom? And, and I said, no, because I never do. And then I thought, oh, no, wait, I'm sorry. Yes, I did. I went to the 17th inning. I said, did you notice that? Oh, yeah. He said, we, we pay attention to you. He said, we know you're part of the game, and we, we listen to what you're telling us. And he said, and you had one guy come up to bat, and somebody substituted for you, and then you were right back at 2 o'clock in the morning. And I thought, wow, I guess they do pay attention. Oh, let me tell you, my friend, the, the, when I filled in, the minute I did it, I started getting texts. What are you doing doing the PA? Where's Dick Callahan? <laughs> I mean, it was, <laughs> it, was a, it was on Twitter. People were texting me from inside the stadium. As soon as they heard my voice, I went, what's he doing? Why is he doing this? 
Well, speaking of your voice, you were so nice to what you did for me on my 1,000th game last May. When, uh, when, of course, it was it was such an evening of, of of unbelievable consequences. When you look at it and you realize that the game started an hour and was an hour and 45 minutes late because of the lighting in left field, and then Fires goes and pitches a no hitter, and it's my 1,000th game, and you were part of it. So uh, I'm grateful to you. I always appreciated your friendship, but but it was such a great part for me to have have all my family and friends there, and they didn't postpone the game. I was grateful for that because I had people in from different parts of the country who were here to be part of the 1000th game. And, and your testimony to me in the pregame was just so appreciated. And I'm grateful for you. Thank you for doing that. Well, your friendship means a lot to me and uh, stay safe, uh, stay inside. And then uh, maybe someday we'll be able to celebrate your great career in the grocery business. <laughs> I can hardly wait. I think what they're going to try to do for me, Chris, is they're going to name a cart after me. I think that's probably what the next the next gesture would be. So they'd have a cart that somebody could push through the Safeway at Alamo that would be conspicuous by my name being on there, having been the only PA announcer exterior from uh, from this from the uh, management group that is at the Safeway at Alamo. You are the best, my friend. We'll talk soon. <laughs> okay, thanks, Tommy. See you. Hit it. Wednesday is known as Hump Day for everyone during the work week, but on A's Cast Live, Wednesday means one thing. It's time for 30 uninterrupted minutes with the two-time World Series champion, two-time All-Star, two-time Rawlings Gold Glove winner, A's analyst on NBC California, and the face of the franchise, Ray Fossey. <laughs> What's up, How Ray? Are you, Tommy? Ah, doing good. How are you? I'm You're talking about Big Mac? Yeah, we, when we did the interview with him, I, I, it really... It made me realize after we did the interview, and a lot of people reached out, and went, "That was great." That you know, for some of the younger A's fans, that's like the first time they've ever he heard him talk. Well, I'll say this, Tony. I had the opportunity, the pleasure, of seeing every one of his 363 home runs hit as a member of the Athletics, and I, I, I would never leave the broadcast booth, whether it's radio, TV. Obviously, just he came to hit. I would never. I I had probably more luxury to leave the booth on radio than TV, but but I was just waiting for that magical time when fastball connecting, and it happened in Seattle against Randy Johnson. A ball was hit, and it was like a, a, a rifle. It came off the bat, and that was before exit velocities were really talked about. They talked more about different things, and all of a sudden, this this number comes up 110 miles per hour. And I'm saying, Randy threw it that hard? He said, no, that's off the bat of McGuire. That was, you know, obviously back at the old Kingdom. But I swear, Tony, if there had not been a roof on the Kingdom, that ball maybe still be going because it was a shot. And Mac, Mac never, ever showed up anybody. He would round, he rounded the bases, kept his head down. He got back into the dugout. He ran at the old Kingdom. They had a, a flat dugout, basically, and you could just walk through a door back to the clubhouse. Well, Mac rounded the bases, went through, went through that door, and when he finally came back out in the dugout, Randy Johnson looked over at him, tipped his hat to him, saying, you got me. I mean, that was so classic. I'm getting goosebumps thinking about it. But, I mean, that was one of those that was just a perfect, perfect swing and a great fastball by Randy Johnson, and all of a sudden this home run just took off. And I said, all these times that I've waited and never left the booth, I finally it paid off, and I got a chance to see that. But nicest guy in the world, and, you know, he's, he's probably misunderstood. If I could tell quickly, um, we were in Cleveland, and he hit the scoreboard, Tony, 
and, and the, Cleveland Stadium, the current stadium now, he hit the scoreboard. It was the longest shot, uh, or her shot, as it threw the pitch, and Mac hit it. And, you know, Big John Adams with his drum sits underneath the scoreboard. It hit right above him. And it was the longest shot we'd ever seen. Well, you know, after the game, you know, we wanted to have him on, and he turned us down. And I said something to him in the clubhouse and said, why'd you turn us down? He said, I didn't want to talk about myself. And I said, I know that. He said, but, you know, you hit a monumental home run like that. We can talk about a lot of things. We don't have to talk about you. But that's the way he was. He would never, ever want to talk about himself. He'd want to talk about the team, his teammates, whomever, but never about himself. And obviously I knew that. So whenever I did interview him, it was about something, nothing ever about him. It was about whatever uh, the subject might be. I, I, don't, I can't even remember. I have the interviews that I did with him, but they were never, ever anything to do about Mark McGuire, this great slugger. You know, you think about that USC team where Randy Johnson yeah. and Mark McGuire are college teammates. The catcher yeah. was Jack Del Rio, former Raiders head coach, longtime <laughs> linebacker. And I, and I used to do the TV show with Jack Del Rio. And I asked him one time, I'm like, what was it like catching Randy Johnson in college? And he goes, it was really scary because he threw so hard. And, but no one knew. The umpire didn't know where it was going. Randy didn't know where it was going. The hitter didn't know where it was going. I mean, it, it, you talk about a scary at-bat, Randy Johnson in college, my God. <laughs> well, how about the bird that ran in front of him? That bird found out how hard he throws. But, you know, the, the one guy, the one catcher, and you know how much and what I think about catchers, but Dave Valley caught Randy Johnson in Seattle. And, you know, Randy goes in the Hall of Fame as a uh, Arizona Diamondback. And really kind of worked out great because Ken Griffey Jr. was the first to go in to the Hall of Fame as a uh, Seattle Mariner. But Randy Johnson was all over the place, like you said. But Dave Valley caught him. And he, what he did, and I've, I've said it many times, that if you force a left-hander to pitch inside, it allows him to complete the pitch. And I've seen pitchers who try to nail the outside corner and they kind of guide the ball and it tails away and it's out of the strike zone. But Dave Valley convinced Randy Johnson, first of all, to pitch inside with a fastball, more importantly, with that devastating slider that he threw to the back foot of the right-handed hitters. Nobody could touch it. And really, the full extension that Randy Johnson came up with was what really probably made him the outstanding pitcher that he turned out to be and a Hall of Famer on top of it. I will say, and you're talking about uh, McGuire, I, I have to bring this up, Old Tiger Stadium. 440 feet to the base of center field. 440 feet. It's, it's like Municipal Stadium before they put the temporary fences in, in Cleveland. But Mark McGuire, when he played for USC, he played at Tiger Stadium. He hit a ball in the upper deck of straightaway center field. 440 feet to the base, he hit it in the upper deck. That's a strong man because when we went in there, when he first came up and he was hitting, and I mentioned something, he said, yeah, I played here before. And then I found out that where he had hit the ball in center field. Tony, it was so massive in the outfield at Old Tiger Stadium that they had the, the, uh, the um, American flag, the foul, uh, flagpole was in play in left center. That's how deep it was because nobody ever hit it that direction. And, and they tried to do it at Comerica Park, and they ended up making the fences shorter because of Juan Gonzalez or Juan thought they were too far away. But, uh, but yeah, that was uh, – Old Tiger Stadium was, was quite a place with a great late Ernie Harwell as a broadcaster. But – Big Mac, I mean, he came in, 49 home runs in his rookie season. And I'll never forget being in the, in the lobby of the hotel on the final day of the regular season, uh, the Sunday, the A's were at Comiskey, going to play the White Sox, Mac sitting on 49 home runs. 
And I said, have a good day. And he said, I will. I'm going home for the son of my birth, uh, birth of my son, Matthew. He left the game. He didn't even play the game on the final day. He could have hit 50. But unselfishly, he went home to be there for the birth of his son, Matthew. And he said, there's something I did. I'll never change it. And he said, I never regretted it. And, of course, uh, I think it was Aaron Judge passed him with the most home runs by a rookie. But Mark McGuire sitting on 49. And say what you want about Mac, but he left the day before the game to go home to be with his wife and his uh, birth of his son. Yeah, what a what a special career he had, and he should be in the Hall of Fame. Yeah. And it's sad that he's not in the Hall of Fame. But you know, one of the things I wanted to get into with you today is been watching a lot of these old school games, and I was watching the Bucky Dent game. And <laughs> here, here here's your, your your old pal Reggie Jackson. Reggie Jackson struck out more than anybody in the history of the game, but you, he's still hitting at the end of the season 279. It's amazing yeah. watching these games from the 70s and the 80s where you got guy even Carlton Fisk is choking up. The amount of contact and the amount of balls being put into play back then versus now, it, it, it's crazy to watch. You know, you're exactly right. And, and, you know, you think of Reggie and the Mr. October label that was given to him. I saw the other day when he hit the three home runs on three different pitch or three different pitchers and three pitches at Yankee Stadium in the World Series in the mid-70s. You know, just a phenomenal hitter in postseason. And that's what we relied on, basically, in, in, the, in the World Series uh, in, in October when I was with the A's in the 70s. I mean, he missed 72 because of a hamstring injury in 72 uh, League Championship Series in Detroit. He tore his hamstring, couldn't play, so he was he was hungry for, for the 73 World Series and playing the Mets, and he had a big home run at the Coliseum, and I think it was game six or seven. I know we won both games, but just a tremendous hitter. But it was, it was and to your point, Tony, about, okay, if there's a runner in second base, let's hit a ground ball to the right side, get him over, and then hopefully somebody can get him in. You know, it was, it was textbook baseball, and, and that's why I think in 1967 – Carl Ustrimsky won this um, won the triple crown with a batting average like 301, something like that. So it's it's something that's out of the ordinary because it is a change game, and you know we have to deal with that because of the launch angles and, and guys hitting home runs and striking out more. But but I think the game, uh, and I, I'm happy to hear you say you're watching some of those those classic games because uh, you're seeing some classic baseball players playing those games, and I think that's where the difference is and. You know, you and I have talked about this before, that when the A's won the three consecutive World Series, it was a five-game league championship series and then the World Series. So there's none of this wild card and the division series and league championship of seven and then World Series. No, it was a five-game league championship series, and you had to win three of the five to go to the World Series. That was the difference. And, uh, you know, it, it's, it's longer now. And uh, did you see the Scott Boros? I just read the headline. It said Scott Boros wants 162 games. The World Series played on Christmas Day. <laughs> wow, uh, that's that. It's gonna it's gonna have to either be in Toronto, Tampa, Houston, or because uh, you can't even guarantee California weather on Christmas Day. No, 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 no. I and you know what? First of all, let's not go any farther without saying let's hope and pray the people who are affected by this coronavirus. And, and, you know, there's a lot of things going on, but let's, let's hope and pray that 
if they are infected, they get well and, and life can get back to normal. But the people are the most important thing right now. And, you know, we're talking baseball and some of the classic games and we're hoping for a 2020 season and all that stuff. But, uh, you know, the, the people are the most important thing right now. And I, I think that's something that we really have to think about uh, and, and hope and pray that they are okay. And, and that's the biggest thing. So having said that and getting that uh, out, uh, yeah, the, the baseball part, it will come back, life will resume, and baseball is going to be great. But uh, it is kind of a nostalgic type thing right now where people can, can look at some of the classic games of the past. And I, I think it's great. And, and you know, I, I'd love to see uh, Willie Mays with his back to uh, the infield making that catch at the photo grounds in the 54 World Series. You know, and uh, watch some games with your grandfather playing in the World Series, you know, just uh, just to watch him play. So it's it's a great time. And I give the A's credit, NBC Sports California. I know that uh, they're doing some special things and uh, just trying to keep fans abreast of what's happening in these tough times, but keep baseball on their minds. And I think they're doing doing a very good job of doing that. You know, they also recently showed the 1980 season. And, you know, just watching the All-Star game and those great players. But I think about yeah. the, the All-Star games you played in. What was it like when you were catching in the All-Star game? And that's when the, na- the National League and the American League, they, they didn't like each other. The game meant something. And those teams you caught against, I mean, those lineups in the National League were just full of Hall of Famers. Well, in, in the 1970 game, which was my first, and, and my wife, Carol, and I went to Cincinnati following a doubleheader, which I caught in Cleveland on the Sunday. We went with Sam McDowell. And, and, and then to play in that game, and, and I, I'll never forget uh, the likes of Harmon Killebrew and Brooks Robinson and uh, uh, Jim Palmer. I'm just thinking Hall of Famers, Louis Aparicio. You know, Tony, uh, Kurt Gowdy did a 30-minute version of, you know, what they do in kind of the highlights of the, of the All-Star game. They did not do the typical introduction where, you know, playing shortstop, Luis Aparicio, and he's on the line. They showed highlights of Luis Aparicio playing shortstop, of Brooks Robinson playing third base. Uh, the late Roberto Clemente played for the National League. Willie McCovey, Mays. I mean, all these guys. And, and I'm looking at this, and I'm counting the Hall of Fame. I think that in that All-Star game in 1970, there were close to 20 Hall of Famers that were playing. And – Dick Dietz, and, and uh, you know, I, it's something that you learn, and I've said it before, but we're saying again, you never assume in a game of baseball that the game is over. There are 27 outs or extra outs, whatever, if it's an extra inning game, but you can never assume it because I learned that lesson with Dick Dietz catching because uh, that was before interleague play and all that stuff, and uh, he, he, I came up, or he came up to play in the ninth inning. And uh, we were leading by a score, I think, of four to one at the time. And I said, hey, Mule, it's a nickname Mule. I said, see, in, uh, in Arizona, in spring training, he had a home run. He came around and scored. They ended up tying the game. And, of course, we played the extra innings and the rest is history. But, but you know, I learned. But, you know, to be there uh, catching the likes of the late Catfish Hunter and, and Clyde Wright, who threw the, the pitch to Jim Hickman in the 12th inning that Pete Rose uh, scored on, uh, you know, the, the line drive to center field. Um, I faced Bob Gibson uh, in the All-Star game. I mean, these are my baseball <laughs> cards coming to life, Tony. I mean, I mean, you think about it, I collected these baseball cards, and then all of a sudden I'm on the bench with some of the guys that I collected cards with, and I'm back behind the plate. I faced Gaylord Perry, hit a double down the right field line, 
because I'm stupidly up there thinking he's going to throw me a Vaseline ball. How stupid can I be? Especially when I caught him at 72, realizing you can't look for it and hit it because it's impossible. But, you know, just a, just a thrill to be on that. But, Tony, you know, the, the thing that I remember most about an un, unfortunate ending to a 70 All-Star game was watching the video of the players coming to home plate to find out how it was. Joe Torrey uh, was in the National League. I mean, he won a batting championship. He came up. Uh, Joe Morgan. All these guys came up to home plate, Brooks Robinson, uh, to see how I was after that collision. And, and to see that and to see them, they could care less about the winning run scoring. They were more concerned about, was I okay? Unfortunately, I wasn't. But, you know, to see those guys coming up to the plate and, and, and still seeing that, that picture in my, my mind right now, I mean, it was a, an, it's an amazing, amazing thing to think about. But, you know, the, the great history, and, you know, you can say what you want about the current. I give these players a lot of credit because I'll be honest with you. I'll look down on the field sometimes and I'll say, did I, I can't believe I played this game because these players today are so talented. Uh, the strength they have, the endurance, uh, the speed, the velocity on the fastballs. But I'll be honest with you, I would not trade one iota, one, one minute of the time that I played, and especially guys that I played with and against in the 70s and the All-Star game and the World Series. I mean, those are memories that will never, ever go away. And granted, the money was nothing like it is now, but money's not everything. And at the time, playing with those guys and playing against them, that was what it's all about. And, and that's why, you know, you can imagine, Tony, I, 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 when I was born, I started collecting baseball cards and all of a sudden, these guys are coming alive. I'm going, wow, this is amazing. I've got your baseball card. I could never say it to the guy because he'd get upset with me. You know, if, if I ever brought up that I had his baseball card because he knew that I was younger than him, and they didn't like that. So uh, I, I, I ran into that and experienced it. But uh, a great time. And, and like I said, in these tough times for the world, for these people to be able to show the classic baseball games, I think it's tremendous because, you know, the thing about baseball town, and you know as well as anybody, there's a past, there's a present, and there's a future. And what people are now getting a chance to see the past, and I think it's great. Well, we did a poll on our A's Cast Twitter account because I've been reading, we've been doing a deep dive on shifting, and we're starting to hmm. find out that shifting doesn't work exactly as well as people try and sell it. Obviously, shifting takes away some hits, but it's also being discovered that pitchers throw less strikes when the shift's employed behind them. That means they walk more batters. More batters walked on base means more runs are being scored. So it kind of comes out in the wash. So I put it out there. Do you like shifting or not? And it was a yes or no question. And Cody is for shifting. I now, reading this evidence, I'm kind of against it because I think it creates more fly balls and strikeouts. And the voting is in, Foss. I won. More people don't want the shift than uh, – and just have basically two guys on the left side, two guys on the right. Where do you weigh in? Yeah. Yes or no on shifting? Well, I, I played in an era where we didn't shift. And there was uh, – you're talking about a classic game. How about the late Ted Williams? They shifted on him, and that was the first. That was back in the 40s. So – I mean, that was something because he pulled the ball. And the, I, the problem I see now with the shift, let's say a left-handed hitter. Instead of having an entire left side of the infield open, a whole left side open, they're trying to hit over the shift. And that's the creation of the five balls that you're talking about. You know, in the financial, financial world, you hear the statement, past success does not uh, guarantee 
future results or our past results does not future guaranteed success in the future. Well, a lot of times with the shifts, it's based on what somebody has done. Now, you, I think you should factor in who's the pitcher. How hard is he throwing? I see guys where guys throwing almost 100 miles an hour, left-handed hitter, and they've got four guys or three guys on the right side of the infield expecting to pull the ball. I'm going, even if he knows what's coming, I don't know that he's going to pull a fastball that hard into the shift that way. So I think there's some examples where you can see. I know the A's won a game against the Blue Jays, um, and all I know is that there was a shift. The pitcher was throwing hard. Like I said, the hitter was, th- was hitting balls over the third-base dugout. He couldn't get around on the fastball. Ends up hitting a ball into the hole where the shortstop normally would be playing. The shortstop had to run over, or the third baseman did, run over, get the ball, throw off balance to first base, bang, bang, play, call, save, game over, A's win the game. And I asked John Gibbons the next day, I said, Gibby, what are you doing with this shift? And he said, well, that's what these people said that, you know, based on what has happened, they're going to pull them on the shift. But, you know, it's something that is part of the game. Uh, I agree with you, to be honest. I would rather see a pitcher turn around and look and see four guys on the infield, three in the outfield. Yeah, you might shift a little bit. But the dramatic shifts that we're seeing in the game today, uh, I don't know that a lot of times a pitcher can pitch into the shift. And to to me, Tony, that's the key. Uh, And and Cody, hope you're doing well, Cody. But uh, I kind of think that if if pitchers that I caught, a catfish hunter, he could pitch into the stretch. In other words, he could throw a pitch that a hitter would hit it to where the shift had been employed. But I don't know that in today's world a greater percentage of the pitchers can do that. And as a result, uh, you're getting, like you said, more walks because guys are trying to pitch maybe into the shift that they're not accustomed to doing. So uh, I kind of agree with you. It's something, though, that we're going to see continue in the future just because that's the analytics of the game and things that have happened, and we're going to see that. But I think some things need to be done um, to, to make sure that, first of all, who's hitting, who's pitching, you know, are they going to be able to do exactly what the defense is being set up to show and do. You know, you, 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 when you played, there was there there was labor stoppage. I mean, it, it happened, unfortunately, oh. all the time. Uh, luckily, we haven't had it since 1994. As a player, when all of a sudden they say, okay, this is when we're restarting, how long did it take you and your, your teammates to, to, to get ready to be able to play on an everyday basis? Well, I'm first going to say that in 1972, I was the player representative for the Cleveland Indians, and we had a meeting in Dallas, Texas, and that was the first vote in which I had to put up my right hand, knowing that I had not one penny in the bank, and I think I was making at the time 7000 to play Major League Baseball, and we went on strike, and the thing that, that I appreciate more than anything, and I still say that everybody should know who Kurt Flood is, who Kurt Flood was, what he did for the game of baseball. Because what we're seeing in today's game with the salaries and and mainly the salaries is because of Kurt Flood and what he did, knowing, as he said to Marvin Miller, I want to I want to challenge the reserve clause. And Marvin Miller said, you know, you've never played the game of baseball again. He said, I know that, but it's important. And he did that. That was in 72. Uh, My wife, Carol, went to work in 72 because we had no money. And so she she went to work and uh, she was a teacher by trade. But because we had hoped it was going to be short. A short period of time, she went to work, and I just continue to work out. To answer your question, if pitchers are still pitching now, and we do not know uh, when the season is going to resume, if it is, let's hope it is, and you know, hope you know everybody can play as many games as, as possible. Um, 
the pitchers are the most important. If the pitchers are throwing and their arm strength is continually built up, and I, I read an article that maybe you did also, Liam Hendricks talking about, I throw, he said, I throw year round. So for Liam Hendricks, uh, work stoppage, uh, a delay of the start probably would not affect him. Uh, pitchers are the ones who come to spring training first, pitchers and catchers, to build up their arm strength. But in reality, those pitchers have done that at a period of time in the offseason to where when they get to spring training, they're ready to go. As, as, as we see with games playing five days after everybody reports to camp. But uh, I, Jerry DePoto, general manager of the, uh, the Mariners, said, I, I would rather have a larger roster of pitchers instead of taking a chance of hurting one of the pitchers. Now, you know, that's something that's going to come up. Um, how much time is missed is going to probably determine, you know, what the players are doing. Uh, DJ LeMahieu stayed in Florida, and I don't know if that camp is still open with the Yankees, but he said, I'm going to stay here, stay in shape, and be ready to go when we do resume. Um, other camps have completely closed down to where players went home. Do they continue to work? But I say that once they decide at a certain point that the game's going to start, probably minimum of two weeks uh, to, get, to get guys ready to go. And, uh, you know, once it happens, they'll probably, whatever date they pick, they're going to make sure that all 30 clubs play the same number of games to keep it fair. And in the case of Liam Hendricks, uh, he said, I want to play 162 if we have to play double headers. Um, have play on off days that schedule off days to make up games. We'll do that. And, and you know, like I said, Scott Boro said, play on Christmas, which I think is impossible. But you know, you know, let, let, let's hope that this whole thing gets resolved and, and baseball can resume uh, because I, I think fans love the game of baseball. Uh, the A's were looking forward to, I thought and think, still think, a very good 2020 season coming up. Uh, there are teams in the case of what Noah Syndergaard today. Just found out he needs Tommy John surgery. I think of uh, Justin Verlander who had groin injury uh, surgery. Uh, players, Aaron Judge, you know, players who injured. David, David Piscotta, the A's with the ribcage injury. So players who have been injured and knew they were not going to be able to start on the opening day, which, by the way, would be tomorrow, uh, maybe those players' teams can benefit a little bit. But I think it's going to require at least a couple of weeks to get players and everybody going again. Um, if, if the A's were to do it in, in Arizona, by the time they resume, it's going to be hot. Uh, so, you know, who knows what's going to happen, but work stoppages were different because once an agreement was made, then we knew when we were coming back. Under the circumstances that the world is going into right now, we don't know that. We don't know when the commissioner of baseball is going to say, okay, on this particular date, we're going to resume, you know, what's it going to be like? So uh, they will need time because unfortunately time has elapsed. Uh, players were ready to get ready to play the game tomorrow, the opening day. That's not going to happen, obviously. And um, we'll, we'll see when it does resume. But there's, they're going to need time because I don't think any club is going to want to send somebody out whose legs aren't in shape, whose arm's not in shape. Um, you know, it, 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 once the season does begin, and again, I'm hopeful that it does begin, that when it does, the pitchers will be ahead of the hitters, typically like they are in spring training. And I think we're going to see that at the beginning of the season when it does resume. All right, Floss, you're the best, buddy. Be be safe, and we'll talk to you next week. Founder, you're good, man. Cody, you're the best. Commander Cody, and uh, you know what I'm looking forward to when it does resume, seeing you down on the field by the dugout with the commander in charge and you holding court and getting people on talking baseball, and it's going to resume. We just have to keep the faith and uh, keep praying for all those people who are suffering because of this uh, this virus and Let's hope the world gets back in shape and we can all get back to normalcy. 
Great stuff, Foss. We'll talk to you soon. You're a good man, Tony. Take care, my friend. And the best to all the A's fans. Our next guest here on A's Cast Live by far was one of the best pitchers of his time. 229 wins, a three-time All-Star, twice led the American League in the ERA. He's a Boston Red Sox Hall of Famer, and you could really make a case he should be in Cooperstown as a baseball Hall of Famer. The great Louis Tion is with us. Louis, thank you for coming on. We truly appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, guys, to give me a chance for the opportunity to be on your show. You know, I really appreciate that. Thank you. Well, I think about your legendary career, and, you know, we see you all the time on MLB Network, especially when they're playing classic games because you played Mm -hmm. in so many great and so many big games. And now you have a book out, Son of Havana, I think about yep. your journey to baseball from playing in Cuba, Fidel Castro, to getting over here to the United States and starring in Major League Baseball. Yes, sir. It's a, it's a, a long journey, you know, a hard journey, you know. But, hey, I come out, like I said, I come out on the top. Thank you, God, they give me a chance, the opportunity in my life to, to fulfill my dreams. You know, when you're a kid, that's what you want to do. Uh, I was, I want to pitch him in the big league. I want to pitch against Mickey Mantle. Uh, um, um, Those are the two players I want to pitch him. And that happened too. Okay. I, I don't have no complaint. You know, I have a good career. I do what I had to do. And, uh, and I do more than I thought I was going to do in my life. Okay. <laughs> I think you got every day I live, you know. Well, I, I think there had to be a lot of pressure, too, back then for a young Cuban pitcher to show up and you're you're playing for the Cleveland Indians. What kind of mm-hmm. pressure was that like? I mean, I mean, just to get away from Cuba was life threatening. But then you come to the United States and when you get your opportunity, you know, to, to help the next generation of Cuban players, it was important for you mm-hmm. to perform well. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, uh. You have a two bag, one to win, one to be defeat. And uh, I never, I mean, nobody want to be defeat. Everybody want to make it no matter what, you know. And you do whatever you can, whatever you, is in your power to do. And and you're learning, you know, you know every year you're learning how to do things and making it easy for you. And, uh, and like, you know, like you said, I come out when I was 17 years old. And... Uh, you know, and then I go to Mexico three years, and then uh, I go to, I come into the United States in 1962. That's my first year, you know, and uh, <clears throat> I go three, two and a half years in the minor. And, uh, you know, uh, I'm lucky uh, I was in Poland when that happened in 64, and they called me up in July 17. You know, in Cleveland, I said before, Cleveland buy my contract from Mexico City. And they give me a chance to come in here and uh, I'm pitching the minor league and then get to the big league. But, uh, you know, you, you have to work hard. You have to have a determination. I never was a, a person I follow. I don't follow nobody. I want to be a leader. And I want to do what I have to do. And I, no matter what it takes me, I fight for. Uh, and I try to do my best. I never give up. And I don't care what people say. A lot of people used to tell me, I don't think you're going to go nowhere because of the way you pitch. 
And look at what happened. I'm fully more. 25 years pitching professional. Almost 19 years in the big league. Nobody know nothing about baseball. And nobody know nothing about life. See, I, I, I don't see nobody here. Rick Mines. That's what I can't understand about people talking so much to something. People don't know nothing about anything. They think they know. But you have to know yourself what you can do. The God made me strong. I come in here to try to get to the big league. And that's what I did. I worked hard. I have some tough time doing minor league where I had to go through the races and the, the discrimination, all of them. But you know, I, I do what I have to do, and, uh, and that's why that's a payoff in the end. You make it, and then when you make it, everything change, everything a little better. Well, down there, you know, and uh, I don't have no complaint. You know, like I say, baseball been very good to me, <laughs> and God been good, but God been great to me, and still been great to me. Okay? You know, I have a good family, my wife, finally the best wife I can find in my life. You know, and then, like I said, I, I, I don't have no complaint. You know I mean, I, I, I nothing, and nobody going to tell us life is easy. Life is, you got to up and down, but you have to fight that. That's what you have. That's how you get better. You know, that's when you do, you meet people, you, you go here, you go there, you meet the guys, you play with them, and you're learning for everybody. You know, just coming, like I told you, young kid, don't just play baseball. Baseball is important because you can learn a lot from baseball. You know, how respect, how be in time, how be a good person, you know. But uh, some people don't don't get it that way. They just want to play, and when they finish, they finish, you know. You can learn a lot of things. You can put them in, you, in your own life to help your life to get better, you know. And that's, a, that's, a what, that's a what I did. That's what happened to me. Like, like I said, I thank you guys every day. They give me that mentality and they give me that, no, I don't say power, but they give me that in my, in my heart. I was a strong person. I never believed in what anybody else said. You know, I want to know and I want to find it myself. And I did it. Thank you, him. Yeah, whoever said uh, you weren't going to make it, uh, their credibility <laughs> took a big hit because 19 years yeah. and 229 wins. That sounds mm -hmm. like making it to me. But but let's go back to when you first get here and you're in mm -hmm. the minor leagues because now baseball has done a much better job of having a lot of Spanish-speaking coaches to help yeah. players. Yeah. But I got to yeah. think back then, as you talked about the racism, you talk about the language mm -hmm. difference, mm -hmm. you probably didn't have a whole heck of a lot of help. <laughs> no, really. No really. I only got one guy this still my my brother. You know, I don't have no brother, I don't have no sister. I the only child. But my friend and my brother, you know, Barry Levinson. I play with him and we come in like a brother. And we still like a brother. You know, because he's still alive. And uh he one one of the guy protects us. They don't let nobody out. The other player trying to be smart with us and stuff like that. And he get a step around the front and he tell him, hey, you miss with him or you miss it with this guy, you better to miss it with me. You know, uh, he was, uh, you know, was a big guy. He was a small guy he from New York. He's Jewish. But he's a tough kid. And he's still a tough kid. 
And, uh, you know, uh, he and me, his mother, he take me to the house, to the mother, the father, the sister, you know. And one day, I tell you the truth now, one day when he was in, in the father's house, the father loved me and the mother too. You know? And then he told me, I don't understand this. My mom and dad love you more than they love me. <laughs> I said, yeah. I told him because you're no good. I said, what? And then, but, but that's the same we, we used to do. Like I said, when you act like a good person, you're a human being, and you do what you're supposed to do, you respect your people around you. That's the way you get back. People love you, people respect you. You know, and, and like I said, you know, when I play in Charlie and Bullying, and Charlie, don't forget it. It was tough. And Bullying to North Carolina, you know, people used to telling us, all offense, used to call in name, calling saints to us, you know. Uh, I used to go to my room and, and cry every day for about a month. Just to listen and the people, what the people said to us. And then one day I get out and say, you know what? What is, I know my thing. I mean, I cry every day, every night for almost a month. I don't do anything. They take call me names and take call names to everybody. I say, Forget about it. I'm going to show people where the color is king, you know, have nothing to do with what you can do. Louis, thank you so much for your time. You're an inspiration. You're one of the great pitchers of your time. Uh, you had classic battles against the Oakland Athletics. We're going to help sell this book. I can't wait to read this book. Be safe, and hopefully we'll be able to enjoy a 2020 baseball season. Yeah, hopefully, too. You know, I don't know how long. I don't know how long we're going to be out play, but I hope they come back. The sport come back. The sport is good for people, good for kids, good for family. You know, and the least you guys also to destroy yourself. You go see the people you like to see. You enjoying that, you know. But hopefully that happens soon, and hopefully we go through this problem we have now uh, through the, the sooner we can, and hopefully everybody okay. Thank you, Louis. Take care. Okay, you too, my friend. Thank you. Thank you for giving me your chance to be in your show. We always appreciate you taking the time. You know Power Alley's my favorite show on, on XM, channel 99 for me. Or is it 89? 89. 89. You know, the, you know the channel number. Come on. Well, and I never take it off because I know the NFL is what, 88? <laughs> So that I, sounds right. I got to a point to where I just turned my my kid. My kids are always like, "Oh my god, Dad!" I'm like, I listen to you guys every morning when I take you to school. Take my kids to school. <laughs> well, you can probably take us to school too. We need to learn a lot. <laughs> <laughs> How have you been? Yeah, I'm good. How are you? Uh, doing well. And you know, one thing that we're going to be doing here on A's Cast Live is we're going to be previewing the divisions. We went, okay, which division do we want to start with first? And we said, why not the NL West? And since you're our favorite, we said, we're going to do the Diamondbacks first. So the Diamondbacks last year, 85 and 77. The big question for them with the, the new additions, are they going to be able to stand up to the mighty Los Angeles Dodgers? Well, it's going to be a tall task to stand up to them. I mean, the Dodgers are really, really good. I mean, they're the most talented team in the National League. I think they're the clear favorites. I mean, They've won seven straight division championships and two of the last three National League pennants. So, 
um, it's a tall task to try and run them down. Now, if, if, as it appears, we're going to have some semblance of a truncated schedule, maybe that makes it a little easier. If, if you get off to a fast start, if you're the Diamondbacks and, and the Dodgers get off to a little bit of a slower start, maybe that makes it uh, easier for it not to balance out in the way that we've seen in the past. But, um, you know, I think it's, it's tough to say that they are going to run down L.A., but I do think this is a team that's going to be in playoff contention all year round, if, if not for the division, then certainly for, for you know, one of the wild card spots. We know you got some good young pitching. What does mm-hmm. it mean to add a guy like Madison Bumgarner with his pedigree and really who he is when he walks into that clubhouse and he's got the three World Series rings, no one has a bigger chip on his shoulder than this guy. He's a tough guy. What does it mean for that clubhouse and the young pitchers? Yeah, in talking to some of the young pitchers about it this spring, I mean, it's already had an impact. I mean, he he um, sought out Zach Gallen to be his catch partner, and I think that meant a lot to Zach. And, and Gallen is probably the least known of the Diamondbacks starting pitchers, but he's also the one that probably has the highest ceiling. You know, they got him to trade from the Miami Marlins, uh, the trade deadline last year where they sent a very good shortstop prospect and jazz schism for him. But uh, Gallon has a chance to be a very, very good starting pitcher. And Bumgarner knows that. And the fact that he took him on as his catch partner, I think that that says a lot about how he feels about him. And I think you're starting to see, you know, he wants to compete every single moment. You know, he is going to continue to have, uh, I think, a strong impact on making sure guys stay focused in the short term. And I think sometimes you know, we can talk about these things and they're overblown a little bit. But with him, I think it's just it, it's a different level of guidance than what they've had before. Zach Greinke was was really good to the pitchers that he pitched with. But he's a little bit different personality, right? He's he's certainly more cerebral. He's not as kind of out front. He's a little bit more quiet, maybe even a little bit more shy. Whereas Bumgarner isn't afraid to, to, you know, go out and say something to somebody. And I'll be really curious to see how the pitchers react to it because, because I have a feeling that they're going to end up, um, you know, really seeing a benefit out of it. And, and, you know, the fact that he demands his teammates to compete every night, I think that's a great positive. Well, yeah, and we got to see him, you know, his whole career in San Francisco and I think about Zach Greinke and I think about Madison Bumgarner and the way these two guys are, that's two different ends of the spectrum. And I think when you bring in a guy like Madison Bumgarner with, with, with that resume and also the fact that he is going to be angry at the San Francisco Giants because they basically said, you're out of here. We're not going to pay you. Thanks for thanks for winning all those big games for us uh, and winning World Series for us. And you know how much he can't stand the Los Angeles Dodgers. I, you're actually getting one of the best pitchers of his era, and you're getting him when he feels he still has something to prove. Yeah, and I think that that's a big part of it with Bumgarner, you know, we we've seen some of the decline in fastball velocity and the decline in stuff, but great pitchers make the adjustment. Yeah, it's funny. I was just listening. I don't know if you ever listened to CC Sabathia's podcast, but he was talking to John Lester about the same thing. I was just listening to it this last week. And those guys who are truly great find a way to maybe not be at the peak of their powers, but certainly continue to evolve. And I think that that's one of the things that Bumgarner will do now, whether that's, using the curveball more or changing the pitch mix a little bit because he's been mostly fastball cutter for his entire career. I think he's competitive enough. I think he's smart enough. I think he sees, 
you know, he's, he's good enough to be able to look at all the information that he's given to be able to find a way to take another step forward. And I, and I will say this, I think towards the end of last year, um, it sounds like he was making some changes in terms of how he used his curveball. And if maybe if that's a pitch that comes into the mix a little bit more, maybe he can make up for a little bit of the loss in the fastball and, and the reliance on the cutter by just mixing that in now and again. And I think about Marte, and I think about Escobar, and I think about the years they had so explosive. That was a lot of fun to watch for you guys. Yeah, it really was. I mean, I think Cattell Marte, you know, he finished fourth in the National League MVP last year, and he really had a great breakout season. And I don't think the power is an accident. I mean, he really is built more like an uh, NFL running back than he is a, a second baseman. He's really uh, put on a lot of good weight and muscle over the course of his professional career. And I think pairing him with Starling Marte, who they got in the trade from Pittsburgh and top of the lineup, you know, I think Starling Marte is a little bit of an underrated offensive performer. I think it gives him a dynamic one-two if you have a healthy David Peralta behind them, which they do right now. You know, Peralta, Escobar, um, you know, gives them a really good top four. And then if you can get a little bit more out of out of um, out of Christian Walker, who you know had a good first season, and you know Nick Ahmed was pretty solid, and then add in the middle there Cole Calhoun, who you saw a lot of, and you know Calhoun is just one of those real competitive grinder players every day. I think they've got the makings of a, a solid offensive unit, and you know certainly one that allows them to compete. You know, I heard your guys' interview with Cole Calhoun that you did for your uh, spring training preview, and bringing him back home, he's an Arizona guy. Mm-hmm. You just kind of see because there were times where Cole Calhoun for the A's, he was a tough out, and he beat the A's up. Now, last year wasn't so hot, but that's another one, change of scenery and hitting in that ballpark every day. And just to hear him and how, how great it is for him to go home, I, I think you could get a big year out of him. Yeah, I mean, he you know, he hit a career high with 33 homers a year ago, and um, you know, I think he's made some adjustments certainly over the last year and a half to be um, a little bit better offensively. Remember, he had just a miserable start to the to the 18th season where he was hitting well under 100 or right around 100 when he went on the injured list in May. And since he's come back from that, he's been pretty consistent. So I think you're probably looking at a guy that's going to be, you know, over the course of a 162-game season would be in the the 20 to 25 homer range and probably on base at a, you know, 325 clip or something like that and play a very good right field. So, um, you know, I think he's, he makes them a little bit more left-handed. One of their issues last year was facing right-handed pitching. And so, um, you know, I think you see, you know, from those, those kind of performances um, that he definitely is a big upgrade for them. And, you know, listen, Adam Jones was forced into more action than they anticipated a year ago because of the injury to Steven Souza Jr. And Jones had a really good start to the year, but their production on right field was pretty low overall. And so I think at the very least, Calhoun gives them a little bit of a boost in that. And he also told a story about Mike Trout when you guys are doing the interview yeah. with him. And it just, he's a regular guy. He likes to joke around. It just so happens he has to be the he just happens to be the best player on the planet. I thought the way he explained what it's like to play with Mike Trout makes you realize really what makes him so special. So those two guys are extremely close too. Like they they were really really good friends with the Angels, and I think you can kind of see why. Cole Calhoun's a pretty normal guy, you know, high energy uh, dude, but pretty normal. And I think that that's certainly the case with Trout. I mean, Trout likes you know loves his his Philadelphia Eagles and he loves to go hunting and fishing and just kind of is normal. But, 
he's an incredibly talented player with a great work ethic too. And, um, you know, I think you just saw the appreciation for just how real a person Mike Trout is. And that's, you know, I think that that certainly seems like it's something that's rubbed off on Cole. You know, talk about Tori, your skipper. We, we we got a chance to hook up with him down in San Diego at the winter meetings, and he told some great stories about when he was in Oakland A. One of them was the, the, uh, the A's were up in Toronto, and they're taking on the Blue Jays, and it's his birthday, and it's a day game. And a bunch of the guys were going to take him out after the game, take him out for his birthday, and they were going to go party. But then he got called in, and he got released. And he was like, wow, Art Hal, that's pretty that's pretty harsh on my birthday. And Art was like, Tori, if you're going to be in this business a long time, you're going to have to learn to deal with it. But, yeah, what a special guy he is. And I can see where you need that kind of leadership to win baseball games on an everyday basis, and he brings you that kind of leadership. Yeah, I, mean, I think I think the thing about him is that he's just so good at building a team environment. I mean, you, you spent – you know, a little bit of time with him and, and you feel very quickly like, you know, Tori, like there's, he's an open book. He wants to know about everybody as a person. He's a great connector. And I think that that, that carries over into the way that he manages a club. And I think he also demands that they take care of the little things. And I think that's one of the things that the Diamondbacks have done over the last couple of years, even in missing the postseason, is that you know, they may have gotten beat on a talent level at times, but they didn't beat themselves. So there's an attention to detail when it comes to defense. There's an attention to detail when it comes to game planning and preparation. There's a huge attention to detail when it comes to base running. And those little things are things that they do well and do right. And and I think that those are things that really matter to him, to, to Tori as a manager. And I think that they carry over into the way that the, the team plays. I mean, he, he's built a really great environment. It's been fortunate that he's had really good guys to, to work with um, in terms of, of just the quality of the people that have been in that clubhouse, but they've built a really strong culture there. I know that's the word that we like to throw around a lot now workplace. Basically it's a good workplace environment. And I think people enjoy coming to work. The players enjoy coming to work there. Yeah. I, as much as, Lately in baseball, people have tried to talk about how ah the manager doesn't mean as much anymore, so much about analytics and front offices. But the reality is you're still dealing with 25 human beings. And somebody's got to sit at the front of the bus. Somebody's got to sit at the front of the plane. Somebody's got to deal with these guys on and off the field. These guys have issues. They have problems like everybody else. Somebody has to actually manage the people. And if you don't have the right guy, yeah. it's really – Mike, that clubhouse can go south really fast. Well, I mean, you've seen it with Bo Mel, too. I mean, you know, Bob, I think, is one of the best at, at managing people. And I think, you know, he does it a little different than Tory, but, but Bob is a straight shooter with his guys, and they know that he has their back. And I think, you know, Bob's also a, a really good tactician, I think. And that's, you know, that's one of the, the real separators as to why he's – in the handful of best managers in the game, but you're right. I mean, they, there has to be somebody that the players look to for answers or that you just like in any line of work, you have to look to your boss for leadership. And they are, you know, while the manager is more of a middle manager than maybe they were 40 or 50 years ago, they still lead you know, the most important, the most important group within an organization, which is the players. And, you know, we can say, well, they don't have as much control over the roster and they don't have as much control over the decision because of the analytics. They still have to make those decisions when it comes to what's happening in the game. And maybe they have better information and input to make those decisions 
but they have to be able to, to, you know, understand that and explain it to their players when it's something that may not look right. And you have to have credibility with that group in order to do it. So I do think that it's still a very important job in that way, in that you're the one who's building the way that your team wants to compete on a daily basis. I know you and the Duke have kicked this around on Power Alley, but uh, tell us how you think the three batter minimum is going to play in the first year. Yeah, I don't know. I don't really know. I mean, I think I, I actually don't mind the idea of it, but that part of this is born of the fact that I just absolutely hate any pitching changes. I just like it, it to me, it's that they just slow the game down beyond anything else. And I, I don't know how it's really going to play out. I mean, I think I'm really curious to see how teams build their lineups to combat that. I think that's one of the things that's really interesting in this is, um, you know, do you, do you go, you know, left, right, left to try and, uh, you know, ensure that there's a strong righty to face the lefty, or do you do the Joe Madden idea where you put a lefty and then two righties behind them? So, that if they come in to face the lefty, they have to face those two guys as well, or you have to force them in maybe to face a righty ahead of the lefty first. I don't know. I mean, I think that those are things that are going to be really interesting, and I think that there are going to be mistakes made. But really, I mean, I think in the end, I, the biggest risk it has is of people overthinking their lineup. You know, lineup construction should be pretty simple, and this should be the thing that we've learned from the statistical revolution, which is, get your best players the most played appearances possible, right? Like that's your best chance to score runs is to get your best hitters up to the plate more often. It's pretty simple. And so I would worry less about what happens with, with a lefty who has to come in maybe in the sixth inning of a game or seventh inning of a game where it might impact, you know, let's say 15 games over the course of the season. And granted, those could be really critical moments over the course of the game than I would be on how you're going to manage the, you know, 700 plate appearances that come with a leadoff spot, the 670 or whatever that come out of the second spot uh, in the order and, and so on and so forth. So I think that to me is the, the bigger thing is like, where's that balance between worrying about how you build your lineup to be able to take advantage of somebody else's bullpen versus like, we just need to get our best hitters to the plate. Let's end on this. You went over to A's camp. You went over to Ho-Ho cam. What are your impressions of the 2020 athletics? Uh, I think they are really, really good. Um, and I think this little delay to the season probably helps because it gets A.J. Puck healthy for the ready, ready, ready regular season, knock on wood. Um, I, think they're, I think they are good enough to knock off the Astros. I think they have to be one of the favorites in the American League. I think it would be really fun if this is the year the Billy Bean stuff works in the postseason because, you know, that, that's, the, that's always been the joke, right, about the A's. Hey, they can get there, but they can't get through it. But, like, I love the lineup. I think they have one of the deepest position player groups in baseball. I think Matt Chapman and Matt Olson are stars. Obviously, Simeon has turned into such a great leader on that team. And I think with guys like Lizardo and Montas, um, you know, and, and, you know, adding puck to the rotation in that mix and a healthy Sean Manaya, I think they have a chance to really, really be very good there too. So I, I, and they still have enough depth in their system that they could make an impactful trade for whatever they need at the deadline, whatever that is. So I, I just, I really like that ace team an awful lot. I think they're, they're, I, I will pick them to win the West when we get going, I think. Um, and I, I could see myself picking them to win the pennant because I think they're, they're that talented. 
Well, I tell you what, it's it's gonna it's it is gonna be a fun year, and everybody. And I've been telling. I don't even. I haven't even told your partner. I told the Duke this. I said once I got my new car and I got SiriusXM. I didn't realize how great it is. And your guys' show really is second to none. Of course, the work that you do for the Diamondbacks, but your coverage of Major League Baseball, and I love how they put uh, Russo on right after you guys. So uh, keep up the great work. And, and, and there's really isn't it, for me. I, I also, you know, during football season, I, I like the NFL Channel, but uh, your guys' channel there at, at SiriusXM is just phenomenal. Well, thanks, Tony. I appreciate it. I mean, we try to have fun. I mean, in the end, and, and you know, I think that this is probably uh, more uh, evident than ever right now is that, man, it's just baseball and we should just enjoy the hell out of it because, um, you know, when it comes back this year, it's going to be a lot more fun to see it again. I think I, I'm already missing it an awful lot and we're already, we're just a week into the shutdown of it, but man, when it comes back, I think there's going to be a great appreciation for it. At least I hope there is because, um, you know, it is just way too much fun. I mean, that's a great way to spend our entertainment dollars and time. Well, you know, out here, it's our morning show. Yeah, that's true. You get to wake up with us, which um, you can ask my wife. It's not really that much fun. <laughs> and the fact that you get to do a show with a guy who's been a general manager, I mean, <laughs> and, and, and everything that he's, I mean, he's been, and he, he's seen it and he's done it. You know, you, you know this one. So, you know, Jim, Jim, about eight years ago, donated his kidney to his daughter, uh, Lindsay, and um, he is just like this incredible human being on top of it. And it really makes me sick because there's nothing I can do that will ever be as great as all of the things that he does for other people. So on top of it, I have to work with a saint. <laughs> hey, uh, we'll call you once this thing starts rolling once again. We always appreciate the time. Take care of you and your family, and we'll be calling. All right, you two stay safe, Tony. Well, now joining us here on A's Cast Live, he's a Stanford graduate, one of the voices of the San Francisco Giants, and does a great job on ESPN with football and basketball. Dave Fleming is with us here to break down the San Francisco the San Francisco Giants. Dave, how are you? Hi, Chris. I'm great. I'm glad you're doing this. Yeah, you know, as our, our president Dave Cavill said, we got to get back on the air, and uh, people need to hear some uh, some positive stuff and hear some baseball. So it's uh, we're we're great. It's great to be back on. But I got to ask you a multiple choice question. So since you've been in lockdown, have you have you a been binge watching Netflix, b doing a lot of puzzles, c board games, or d something other with the family? Okay, so our first, uh, you know, I mean, the kids are in school, so I'm not going to answer the A, B, C, D, but I will say that, the, you know, the days are pretty well taken up by school. We've tried to do some uh, as much P.E. type stuff as we can in the backyard, too. And then our night times, we've played some board games, but we tackled Ken Burns' Civil War. Really? Uh, which, <laughs> You know, it's a it's a wrestling match with that one. I mean, it's wonderfully done, but uh, the kids had never seen it, and I hadn't seen it since it came out 20-plus years ago, and we watched it start to finish. So that was our first uh, 10 days of uh, nighttime family activity. Nice. A little education going on at the Fleming House. I like it. Well, let's get into the San Francisco Giants, who last year were 77 and 85. Uh, they, they got hot in the middle of the season, kind of changed maybe the plans for Farhan Zaidi. W- what are your expectations going into 2020? Well, the expectations are I think this year will feel similar to last year. Last year to me was a mixture of 
you know, it's the veteran giants that everybody knows about giants and, and baseball fans have known these guys and watched these guys for so long now. And a lot of them are still here. And in fact, some of them like Hunter Pence are coming back, um, which is funny and interesting. Uh, but I, th- I think it's going to be a mix of that plus experimentation with whether it's young players from the minor leagues, which I think the Giants this year are closer to having some of those guys really make the jump up than they were last year, or, uh, you know, players in the ilk of Mike Yastrzemski, whom they find from other organizations who can help them. So I think it's going to feel similar to last year. I think we're another one year away of something feeling a lot different. I think this year is more the same, a mixture of, the veterans and the comfortable names with uh, trying out some new faces. And you look at some of the guys who were definitely positives from last year, and I think you definitely have to say baby Yaz, Mike Yastrzemski with the 21 home runs. Uh, He really came on and and showed that he can be an everyday player for the Giants. Well, you you know, you, you never know what to expect with when you pick up a player like that, and the Giants picked him up from the Baltimore Orioles who felt like he didn't fit on their 40-man roster. And when you consider how bad the Orioles were last year, it's sort of hard to believe that they didn't have room for this guy because as soon as the Giants gave him a chance, he produced. And he had a legitimately good year, exciting year. Uh, it wasn't just the raw numbers. If you look at, like, the batted ball profile, really dig deep. I mean, he had one of the top, 10 you know, launch angle, exit velocity, combo metrics. You know, you can look at these things in a lot of different ways, but he hit the ball hard the way you're supposed to hit it and produced numbers and played all three outfield spots and did so very well. Uh, you know, he really had an excellent year. Now he's on the older side for a young, quote, player, uh, and that brings a whole different set of questions. But Mike Yastrzemski was legitimately good. And I think the Giants are going to give him a ton of at-bats and maybe use him. You know, last year they had Kevin Pillar. Pillar is not around this year. I think they're going to use Mike all over the outfield in different kinds of ways than they did last year and maybe even see if he can be their everyday center fielder. Were you shocked about the Pillar move? I wasn't shocked because I do think that, again, part of the task this year, Pillar was not going to sign a long-term contract. Giants fans really – Loved Kevin Pillar. We all liked having him around. Kevin had a good year with the Giants last year, but you know they weren't going to give him. They were, they were not in a position to give him a long-term deal. So the the alternative was bring him back for one year. And I'm I'm sure that they had a lot of internal arguments about it and debates about whether to do that. And I think in the end they just decided, look, we have so many other spots on the diamond that are essentially occupied. Evan Longoria is going to play third base mostly. Brandon Belt is going to play first base mostly. Buster Posey is going to mostly play catcher. Brandon Crawford is mostly going to play shortstop. There aren't that many other spots on the field where the Giants can try to find the next Yastrzemski or whomever. And I think center field is a spot or at least an outfield spot is a place where the Giants felt like we need a little more versatility. If we sign Pilar, he's going to get 500 at bats. He's going to play every day. And if it's not a long-term deal, if he's not going to be around for the next five years, we might as well start this season that process of trying to find other talented younger players. And that's not a knock on Pilar. I'm sure it was a hard decision not to bring him back. You know, obviously what Buster Posey has meant to this franchise, and you think of the one guy that's been in the lineup for all three championship teams, he's been the guy. 
But then you have Joey Bart, and he had the hand fractures last year. He's 23. He was the second overall pick out of, what, Georgia Tech. And I'm thinking to myself, the timeline, when you got a guy that's that talented and he's a college guy, at the age of 23, you start thinking, okay, it's going to be his time. How do you think this plays out between Bart and Buster Posey? Yeah, it is It is almost his time, and you're right. That is probably the hardest dilemma for the franchise at the moment, sort of short, medium term, is how to implement him. Now, you know, it could be that if the season is severely delayed or even, you know, even if it's just six or eight weeks, which to me is pretty severe, but, you know, even if we're back to playing baseball, say, in June, you know, it might be that that takes away enough minor league at bats from Bart to where it's going to be less of an issue this year than we all thought it would be. Cause I, the, the giants feel like he still needs some more experience in the minor leagues, some more, not a lot more, but some more. And you know, that problem might go away for this year. It still would be there long-term, uh, but, but he's talented. They want him up. I think the ultimate answer is at the catcher spot, even a 50, 50 split, which, you know, I'm not saying that's what's going to happen, but a 50-50 split still gives players a chance to be really valuable and protect bodies and keeps people fresh, and it's not the worst way to go. I mean, the A's have done that in a lot of their good years with, you know, you know maybe guys who aren't as super talented as Buster Posey and Joey Bard are, but timeshares at that position are easier than at others. And if Joey Bart gets sort of, uh, you know, 40% playing time, you could still make a case that, you know, something real positive was happening with him. So that's kind of a long way of answering and saying, I think it's not going to be as hard as it seems on paper to share at that position. Well, the one guy I'm really looking forward to watching his comeback because he's just entertaining as hell on the mound is Johnny Cueto. He's got great stuff. He's coming back from Tommy John and, you know, for some of these guys who have been injured, a little more of a layoff may not be bad for them. But I'm I'm excited to see him again because he's so much fun to watch, and, and, and he will be the Giants' ace. You know, me too. And he is a guy who, uh, you know, I don't know if it was easy to underappreciate him when he was kind of rolling along because he's he doesn't say much. He's a pretty quiet guy. Uh, you know, he can be flamboyant on the mound, but he certainly isn't that in his overall uh, sort of public personality. I guess his Instagram would argue against that. But uh, one thing that we've known about Johnny through this whole process, found out about him, is what a tenacious, passionate, you know, I never knew, even watching him up close and personal, how much he cared about baseball and being on the mound and his pitching and his career. He has worked so hard to get back to better physical condition, to get back healthy and be on the mound. And I think he is just itching to have a good year. So, you know, part of it is he's just fun to watch out there. He does things so differently. The other part of it is, is that I think we're going to see like a totally determined guy pouring everything he has into being as good as he can. And that's always fun to watch. You know, I got to cover Bruce Bochy over the years, and he was always very generous with his time to come on with us. And we recently just had him on when he was helping out Tony LaRussa and ARF. And then I got to interview Gabe Kapler for the first time down at the winter meetings in San Diego. These are two opposite guys. And obviously their careers and their age 
What do you think this difference is going to be like going from Bruce Bochy to Gabe Kapler? Well, to me, you know, part of it is going to be, and this is not to say Bochy, you know, Bochy inspired a lot of loyalty with his coaches over the years. And you can think of the coaches who were with him for a long, long time in San Francisco. There are a lot of names, even going back to San Diego, there are a lot of names. But I do think that the franchise from a coaching standpoint was dominated by Bruce uh, over these last many years. And he was a big, big personality in that room when he got on the bus, standing in the dugout. And I think one of the main differences is going to be is this is going to feel much more like a Gabe Kapler is leading a collaborative effort of the Giants hired 13 major league coaches. 13 is a big number. Uh, you can only have, what, seven in uniform in the dugout during the game. So that means there are going to be six other coaches who can't be in the dugout who are working with the team full-time on the major league level. And I think that's what's going to be the biggest difference is it's going to feel like a major overhaul of the coaching staff as a whole, more so than, okay, that one chair is going to – because the one chair is going to feel different. But I think Gabe is much more likely to be – a delegator and somebody who's using all those coaches in a much different way than the Giants have before. You guys are going to need a bigger plane. It's, you know what? It sounds like a joke, but it's an actual issue that I think they've been working on uh, because the plane is configured for a certain number of seats and it's gotten more full and more full over these last few years, even without 13 major league coaches. And these are first class, first world problems for sure. But even the last couple of years, there were a couple flights a year where somebody of the regular traveling party had to go on their own because there wasn't room. And uh, they are going to have to be. I haven't heard what the solution is, but it is a problem. It's an issue because you know it's not just 13 major league coaches. It's massage therapists and nutritionists and video coordinators. And the Giants travel two. I don't think a lot of teams travel two full-time traveling a video analyst to help out the players, you know, process all the info that they get. Uh, and so it is a very, you said that sort of as a funny line, it's an actual issue with some of these teams and the giants are now probably as full as anybody. Hey, we always appreciate the time. We love listening to you on the radio and love watching on television once we get to college football. And unfortunately, we didn't get to finish college basketball. But be well, be safe with the family, and we'll see you when the uh, Giants hook up with the athletics. We can't wait uh, until the season gets going. Everybody be safe. Thanks for having me on. I'm glad you guys are talking uh, ball. And uh, as soon as we make sure that everybody's going to be okay, or at least relatively so, I can't wait to get the game started. Well, now joining us here on A's Cast Live as we're previewing every single team in Major League Baseball, and we started with the NL West. We've done the Diamondbacks. We've done the Giants. Now we're going to do the San Diego Padres. And a former Padre, a big leaguer, and now does television radio for the Padres, Tony Gwynn Jr. joins us once again. Tony, I know it's very odd times, but thank you for coming on to talk a little baseball. No problem. My pleasure at all. Anything to kind of get the mind off of, of what's going on in our country and in the world right now. Love talking baseball. Yeah, we decided that we were gonna we were gonna keep things going here. Our president Dave Cavill made the decision to get back on the air because so many people are cooped up inside and they want to hear something other than news. So we're hopefully giving them a great release. 
And we decided to really just, we're going to break down every individual team. And we obviously we have time to do it. So we've done two National League West clubs. Now this is our third and we're doing your San Diego Padres. And when you think about the Padres last year, people thought they were going to be, you know, they were one of those chic teams getting Manny Machado. Tatis was coming up. Yeah. Uh, they people thought they were going to be be able to make some type of run out of it, but really ran out of gas in the second half and went just twenty five and forty seven. Yeah, it was uh, it was a tough go for for the pods in that second half. Uh, one of the most exciting players in baseball, Fernando Tatis Jr., um, got hurt and missed a lot of that second half, but. Um, certainly disappointing finish. The start to the year, however, was, was I think, better than expected. So I, I'm thinking the Padres, you know, should we get able to get back to baseball? They're kind of hoping for to see what they saw in the first half of the season rather than the second half. Well, Ron Fowler, who runs the Padres, said earlier that this needs to be a season where they need to see some progress. And now some people have kind of backed off of that because it's been a long yeah. time since the Padres have been in the playoffs, 05, 06, haven't had a winning season since 2010. And now, of course, we're going to have this a shortened season. Uh, what do you think the expectations are for the Padres going into 2020? I would have said before the season, uh, before we before this, everything started getting shut down because of COVID-19, I would have said, uh, being in the mix for a wild card would have been um, suffice. I think that would have fulfilled what you know owner Ron Fowler was was asking for. And I know he's backed off of it a little bit, but there's still some some pressure uh, to make this thing work. So uh, I I personally believe should the, the, we get back to some baseball here in the, in the near future, uh, the Padres have an advantage to to actually get. To actually be at in the running for a wild card spot. Look, the Dodgers are the Dodgers. They they had a significant gap between them and everybody else in the division last year. I think that gap probably has widened uh, with Mookie Betts and, and David Price being added to that team. So, listen, anything can happen. Teams could have a bad year, and that would certainly be something that would put the division back in play. But it's hard to it's hard to imagine the Dodgers not winning the division. So I think for everybody else, uh, it, it's a look at the, the the wild card race, and I think the Padres have a type of roster that certainly could take one of those spots. Tell us how special Fernando Tatis Jr. is, and who does he remind you of? Mm, that's a really good question. Um, Fernando Tatis Jr. reminds me of Roberto Alomar, um, he has a chance to be really, really good. And I know Roberto was a second baseman. In terms of athleticism and fluidity and the movement, he reminds me a lot of Roberto Alomar. Um, I think the sky is the limit for Fernando. I think ultimately right now, I think what most people are watching is can he stay healthy for an entire season? And listen, I, I remember being 21 years of age and thinking I was invincible. Um, I think <laughs> – I think at some point in time, he's going to have to get to a point where he's much more cognizant of his body and, and when to, when to go full throttle and when to dial it back a little bit, this is, as we all know, and maybe, maybe this shortened season will benefit a guy like that because 
He can afford to go full tilt. It's not the marathon that it normally is, depending on how many games we get to play. But I think that's the one thing that could hold him back is, is him not being on the field. I mean, he is so productive and so exciting when he is on the field. When the Padres don't have him in the lineup, he, he's, he's certainly a guy that, that leaves a huge hole that really can't be filled by anybody in this, in this organization. Yeah, I like that comparison because years ago, a young Roberto Alomar, even though Gary Templeton was there, they envisioned him being a shortstop Roberto and ended up, of course, being a Hall of Fame second baseman. So I do like that comparison. And then I think about Manny Machado. And when we were down, I got I got to see it down at the winter meetings in San Diego, and we were hearing about stuff about Machado. And I, I don't know if it was a good look talking about how your first year you maybe didn't give it your all in the first year of a 10-year deal with $300 million. I got to think that didn't sit well with Padre fans. I Listen, I think when it comes to Manny, I, I think there's a, a certain understanding of he, he is who he is. And I think um, – Although it might have been a little bit disappointing to hear him say that, you know, he, he, he didn't turn it on the way he should have. He wasn't the only one in that boat. And, and obviously it's easy to point out the guy who's making the most money and, and, and is, you know, you're probably the face of your franchise. But the reality is there were a, a lot of guys in that boat that uh, when you watch that team play in the first half and then you compare them to what you saw in the second half, it looks like two entirely different teams. So, uh, I, I, for one, I think many people around the organization think Manny's due for a breakout year. Uh, after we've seen this before, the year, the year before with Eric Hosman, you make the, the transition from the American League to the National League. You're seeing pitchers that you haven't really seen before, and that's advantage pitchers in every situation. Uh, I expect them to have a big year this year. And uh, I think with the, the staff that they put around Jace Tingler, uh, they're certainly going to be there to hold them accountable and, and 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 Manny has said as much so far when when we were at least when we were at spring training he said that you know this this staff that they have around won't allow for any of us to take the throttle off. Well, one guy the Padres pit. Well, there's two guys, but one I want to talk about here. Tommy Pham is a baller. We've seen yeah. him in the American League. He brings it every single day. He is a tough out. I remember last year in Tampa, I was with the A's down in St. Petersburg, and he wore the A's out in a series. I think that was a terrific pickup because it's that guy that brings talent, but he brings energy and toughness every day to the park. Talk about having a teammate like that. Yeah, that, that's, the, that's the signing to me that is going to be the game changer for the Padres, right? You got the talent. Now you need that guy that – no matter what day it is, no matter how many games straight he's played, he's bringing the same energy. And his expectation is that his teammates are bringing the same type of energy and toughness. So uh, I've been in clubhouses like that. It raises everybody's level of play. It raises everybody, uh, everybody's toughness. And I think that's what Tommy Sam is going to bring to the table. I mean, I saw him in spring training. I did about four games out to four or five games. And I promise you, and he played in all of them. He was the only guy playing in back-to-back-to-backs like as soon as he was. And every at-bat was a 3-2 count. And for a young Padres team, uh, a, a team that has some, some veterans, but he's the, really the tone setter. Like when you see an at-bat put together the way Tommy Pham puts an at-bat, you'd be remiss not to go up and, and try to, to at least make the pitcher work a little bit, right? Because 
he's doing it every at bat. I, I think that's been one of that's going to end up being one of the best signings uh, the Padres have made, or excuse me, trades that they have made. And um, I think he's going to do wonders for this Padres team. And I think about what could be a big strength in 2020 for the Friars is that bullpen. Uh, two former yeah. A's coming your way, Emilio Pagan and Drew Pomeranz. And then you throw in the guy, Kirby Yates, who uh, hopefully people in baseball understand how good he is. 41 saves last year that led Major League Baseball with a 1.19 ERA, which is the lowest in club history. Talk about the strength that is the bullpen for the Padres. Yeah, it's definitely a strength. The Emilio Pagan uh, pickup, bringing him over to the staff, signing Drew Pomerant, are going to turn out even bigger than they were because with Andres Munoz, who was the young kid, came up throwing 100 and did had a lot of success in his rookie season last year. He's out for Tommy John now. So you, the depth that they had, it, it was an abundance of depth in the relievers area prior to uh, everything getting shut down. Is a little bit less depth. So uh, I still think this is going to be the strongest part of the, of the ball club. You mentioned Kirby Yates, who's become one of the best relievers uh, in baseball, in my opinion, over the last two seasons. you got a, a, a vet like, like Craig Stammen who comes in and can pick, wear many different hats in that bullpen. You mentioned Drew Pomeranz. You mentioned Emilio Pagan. You have a guy like Jose Castillo coming off of injury last year. This bullpen has the ability, has the potential to be one of the best bullpens in the league. And that's without a guy like Andres Munoz, who, who made this bullpen pretty good at the end of the year. You know, it's sad, but every organization, you know, it's that dirty word, Tommy John. Yeah, uh, yeah. Just, you know, like Chris Paddock last year. I mean, this kid's super special, but you're going to baby him coming back from Tommy John, a guy that we saw for years in, in Anaheim. Garrett Richards are counting on him. Mm -hmm got Lamette coming back. You got all these guys in this rotation, but that's really much everybody's rotation. But talk about this rotation for the Padres, because if guys are healthy, you do have some real quality arms. We do. The Padres definitely have some 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 quality arms. I think you're going to see the range taken off of, uh, of Chris Paddock now. I don't know if that would be the same for Garrett Richards, at least early, because he, can, he actually made a couple starts at the end of the season uh, last year. And depending on how much they want to, you know, kind of baby him through that first part of the season, uh, we don't really know yet. But if everybody's up at full strength, including Nelson Lamette, they get a good pickup, in my opinion, like Zach Davies, who can come in and, and give you some innings. And when he's healthy, he's also been very good. At the back end, you got Joey Lucchese, who was a number two last year in this rotation. He slides to the five. Or Cal Quantrill, who showed very well, too, last year. Uh, this if those first three guys are healthy, uh, excuse me, the first four guys are healthy, this rotation has potential to be very, very good. And I think this this season will change the way front offices think a little bit because we're going to play a shorter season. That's what it looks like. And we've got two guys up here in Jesus Lazardo and A.J. Puck where we were thinking about if it was a 162-game season, they were going to have innings limits. They were going to have to baby him. And I think about a guy that everybody's talking about in McKenzie Gore for the Padres. He's just 21. He's got an electric arm. At some yeah. point, he's going to come up. Do you see with the shortened season, we may not baby these young pitchers as much? I, I could see that, and I hadn't thought about that honestly until you just said it in terms of Mackenzie Gore. But I think the plan for him going into the season was 
Let him come out, get his feet wet in spring training, uh, then start the year at the minor league level, and eventually, some point, second half, before the break, uh, you might see him. Now, with the season being shortened, who knows what could happen? Uh, in a short second spring training, show enough to feel, to make this front office feel like the time is now. Now, I will say, I doubt the Padres will push the time frame up any bit more than it already has been. So I would think he would have to show wonderful in order to make that roster. But I, no doubt at some point this year, you're going to see Mackenzie Gore and you're going to see him in this rotation. Yeah, let's end on this. As people have talked about how, you know, we don't know what we're going to see. Like if they're going to take the playoffs into November, you know, you could have neutral sites like we see for the Super Bowl. You know, maybe you're playing playoff series in L.A., Anaheim, and and San Diego because the weather usually is still pretty good in November. Or you got roofs yeah. at Houston and in Arlington with the Rangers' new ballpark. I mean, we have no idea what, what this season and what the playoffs are even going to look like. We don't, and I think that adds to the intrigue. I think that makes it more exciting. I mean – there was already talks of adding wild cards later on down the line. Maybe they go to that now. Maybe they they find a way to to have a neutral site come playoff time because come November are, um, are pretty silly and <laughs> not necessarily baseball weather. So I think it adds an injury. Nobody really knows what the season is going to look like. We do know both sides want to get as many games in as possible. Uh, what that looks like, we don't know, but. Uh, I just have a feeling it's going to be very creative and it's going to be something that we are going to enjoy, even if it is for just this one season. Tony, I always love talking baseball with you. It's it's a lot of fun, and I know a lot of people appreciate that uh, guys like you and me are back on the air talking about our great game and helping a lot of people here in Northern California who are on lockdown, just like you guys are in Southern California, and, and just be able to give them a release away from all the news because it's tough watching the news now. Be well, be safe, and we'll talk to you during the season. You do the same. It was an honor to come on and, and actually be able to have some baseball talk. And uh, you guys take care. This has been a presentation of the Oakland Athletics.